This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Goliath by Jack London, first published in 1908. It's read by Greg Marguerite and runs 57 minutes. We'll be discussing it afterwards. Goliath by Jack London. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Goliath by Jack London. In 1924, to be precise, on the morning of January 3rd, the city of San Francisco awoke to read in one of its daily papers a curious letter, which had been received by Walter Bassett, and which had evidently been written by some crank. Walter Bassett was the greatest captain of industry west of the Rockies, and was one of the small group that controlled the nation in everything but name. As such, he was the recipient of lucubrations from countless cranks. But this particular lucubration was so different from the average ruck of similar letters that, instead of putting it into the wastebasket, he had turned it over to a reporter. It was signed Goliath, and the superscription gave his address as Palgrave Island. The letter was as follows. Mr. Walter Bassett, Dear Sir, I am inviting you with nine of your fellow captains of industry to visit me here on my island for the purpose of considering plans for the reconstruction of society upon a more rational basis. Up to the present, social evolution has been a blind, aimless, blundering thing. The time has come for a change. Man has risen from the vitalized slime of the primeval sea to the mastery of matter, but he has not yet mastered society. Man is today as much the slave to his collective stupidity as a hundred thousand generations ago he was a slave to matter. There are two theoretical methods whereby man may become the master of society and make of society an intelligent and efficacious device for the pursuit and capture of happiness and laughter. The first theory advances the proposition that no government can be wiser or better than the people that compose that government, that reform and development must spring from the individual that in so far as the individuals become wiser and better, by that much will their government become wiser and better. In short, that the majority of the individuals must become wiser and better before their government becomes wiser and better. The mob, the political convention, the abysmal brutality and stupid ignorance of all concourses of people give the lie to this theory. In a mob, the collective intelligence and mercy is that of the least intelligent and most brutal members that compose the mob. On the other hand, a thousand passengers will surrender themselves to the wisdom and discretion of the captain when their ship is in a storm on a sea. In such matter, he is the wisest and most experienced among them. The second theory advances the proposition that the majority of the people are not pioneers that they are weighted down by the inertia of the established, that the government that is representative of them represents only their feebleness and futility and brutishness, that this blind thing called government is not the serf of their wills, but that they are the serfs of it. In short, speaking always of the great mass, that they do not make government, but that government makes them 
and that government is, and has been, a stupid and awful monster, misbegotten of the glimmerings of intelligence that come from the inertia-crushed mass. Personally, I incline to the second theory. Also, I am impatient. For a hundred thousand generations, from the first social groups of our savage forebears, government has remained a monster. Today, the inertia-crushed mass has less laughter in it than ever before. In spite of man's mastery of matter, human suffering and misery and degradation mar the fair world. Wherefore, I have decided to step in and become captain of this world ship for a while. I have the intelligence and the wide vision of the skilled expert. Also, I have the power. I shall be obeyed. The men of all the world shall perform my bidding and make governments so that they shall become laughter producers. These modeled governments I have in mind shall not make the people happy, wise, and noble by decree, but they shall give opportunity for the people to become happy, wise, and noble. I have spoken. I have invited you and nine of your fellow captains to confer with me. On March 3rd, the yacht Energon will sail from San Francisco. You are requested to be on board the night before. This is serious. The affairs of the world must be handled for a time by a strong hand. Mine is that strong hand. If you fail to obey my summons, you will die. Candidly, I do not expect that you will obey, but your death for failure to obey will cause obedience on the part of those I subsequently summon. You will have served a purpose. And please remember that I have no unscientific sentimentality about the value of human life. I carry always in the background of my consciousness the innumerable billions of lives that are to laugh and be happy in future eons on the earth. Yours for the reconstruction of society, Goliath. The publication of this letter did not cause even local amusement. Men might have smiled to themselves as they read it, but it was so palpably the handiwork of a crank that it did not merit discussion. Interest did not arouse till next morning. An Associated Press dispatch to the Eastern States, followed by interviews by eager-nosed reporters, had brought out the names of the other nine captains of industry who had received similar letters, but who had not thought the matter of sufficient importance to be made public. But the interest aroused was mild, and it would have died out quickly had not Gabberton cartooned a chronic presidential aspirant as Goliath. Then came the song that was sung hilariously from sea to sea with the refrain, Goliath will catch you if you don't watch out. The weeks passed and the incident was forgotten. Walter Bassett had forgotten it likewise, but on the evening of February 22nd he was called to the telephone by the collector of the port. I just want to tell you, said the latter, that the yacht Energon has arrived and gone to anchor in the stream off Pier 7. What happened that night Walter Bassett has never divulged, but it is known that he rode down in his auto to the waterfront, chartered one of Crowley's launches, and was put aboard the strange yacht. It is further known that when he returned to the shore three hours later, he immediately dispatched a sheaf of telegrams to his nine fellow captains of industry, who had received letters from Goliath. These telegrams were similarly worded and read, The Yacht Energon has arrived. There is something in this. I advise you to come. Bassett was laughed at for his pains. It was a huge laugh that went up, for his telegrams had been made public, and the popular song on Goliath revived and became more popular than ever. 
Goliah and Bassett were cartooned and lampooned unmercifully, the former as the old man of the sea, riding on the latter's neck. The laugh tittered and rippled through clubs and social circles, was restrained merrily in the editorial columns, and broke out in loud guffaws in the comic weeklies. There was a serious side as well, and Bassett's sanity was gravely questioned by many, and especially by his business associates. Bassett had never been a short-tempered man, and after he sent the second sheaf of telegrams to his brother captains and had been laughed at again, he remained silent. In this second sheaf he had said, Come, I implore you, as you value your life, come. He arranged all his business affairs for an absence, and on the night of March 2nd went on board the Energon. The latter, properly cleared, sailed next morning, and next morning the newsboys in every city and town were crying, Extra! In the slang of the day, Goliath had delivered the goods. The nine captains of industry who had failed to accept his invitation were dead. A sort of violent disintegration of the tissues was the report of the various autopsies held on the bodies of the slain millionaires. Yet the surgeons and physicians, the most highly skilled in the land had participated, would not venture the opinion that the men had been slain. Much less would they venture the conclusion at the hands of parties unknown. It was all too mysterious. They were stunned. Their scientific credulity broke down. They had no warrant in the whole domain of science for believing that an anonymous person on Palgrave Island had murdered the poor gentleman. One thing was quickly learned, however, namely that Palgrave Island was no myth. It was charted and well known to all navigators, lying on the line of 160 west longitude, right at its intersection by the 10th parallel north latitude, and only a few miles away from Diana Shoal. Like Midway and Fanning, Palgrave Island was isolated, volcanic, and coral in formation. Furthermore, it was uninhabited. A survey ship in 1887 had visited the place and reported the existence of several springs and of a good harbor that was very dangerous of approach. And that was all that was known of the tiny speck of land that was soon to have focused on it the awed attention of the world. Goliath remained silent until March 24th. On the morning of that day, the newspapers published his second letter, copies of which had been received by the ten chief politicians of the United States, ten leading men in the political world who were conventionally known as statesmen. The letter, with the same superscription as before, was as follows. Dear Sir, I have spoken in no uncertain tone. I must be obeyed. You may consider this an invitation or a summons, but if you still wish to tread this earth and laugh, you will be aboard the yacht Energon in San Francisco Harbor, not later than the evening of April 5th. It is my wish and my will that you confer with me here on Palgrave Island in the matter of reconstructing society upon some rational basis. Do not misunderstand me when I tell you that I am one with a theory. I want to see that theory work, and therefore I call upon your cooperation. In this theory of mine, lives are but pawns. I deal with quantities of lives. I am after laughter, and those that stand in the way of laughter must perish. The game is big. There are 1,500 million human lives today on the planet. What is your single life against them? It is as naught in my theory. And remember that mine is the power. Remember that I am a scientist, and that one life or one million lives mean nothing to me as a raid against the countless billions of billions of lives of the generations to come.
It is for their laughter that I seek to reconstruct society now, and against them your own meager little life is a paltry thing indeed. Whoso has the power can command his fellows. By virtue of that military device known as the phalanx, Alexander conquered his bit of the world. By virtue of that chemical device, gunpowder, Cortez, with his several hundred cutthroats, conquered the empire of the Montezumas. Now I am in possession of a device that is all my own. In the course of a century, not more than half a dozen fundamental discoveries or inventions are made. I have made such an invention. The possession of it gives me the mastery of the world. I shall use this invention, not for commercial exploitation, but for the good of humanity. For that purpose, I want help, willing agents, obedient hands, and I am strong enough to compel the service. I am taking the shortest way, though I am in no hurry. I shall not clutter my speed with haste. The incentive of material gain developed man from the savage to the semi-barbarian he is today. This incentive has been a useful device for the development of the human, but it has now fulfilled its function, and is ready to be cast aside into the scrap heap of rudimentary vestiges such as gills in the throat and belief in the divine right of kings. Of course you do not think so, but I do not see that that will prevent you from aiding me to fling the anachronism into the scrap heap. For I tell you now that the time has come when mere food and shelter and similar sordid things shall be automatic, as free and easy and involuntary of access as the air, I shall make them automatic. What of my discovery and the power that discovery gives me? And with food and shelter automatic, the incentive of material gain passes away from the world forever. With food and shelter automatic, the higher incentives will universally obtain the spiritual, aesthetic, and intellectual incentives that will tend to develop and make beautiful and noble body, mind, and spirit. Then all the world will be dominated by happiness and laughter. It will be the reign of universal laughter. Yours for that day, Goliath. Still the world would not believe. The ten politicians were at Washington so that they did not have the opportunity of being convinced that Bassett had had, and not one of them took the trouble to journey to San Francisco to make the opportunity. As for Goliath, he was hailed by the newspapers as another Tom Lawson with a panacea, and there were specialists in mental diseases who, by analysis of Goliath's letters, proved conclusively that he was a lunatic. The yacht, Energon, arrived in the harbor of San Francisco on the afternoon of April 5th, and Bassett came ashore. But the Energon did not sail the next day, for not one of the ten summoned politicians had elected to make the journey to Palgrave Island. The newsboys, however, called extra that day in all the cities. The ten politicians were dead. The yacht, lying peacefully at anchor in the harbor, became the center of excited interest. She was surrounded by a flotilla of launches and rowboats, and many tugs and steamboats ran excursions to her. While the rabble was firmly kept off, the proper authorities and even reporters were permitted to board her. The mayor of San Francisco and the chief of police reported that nothing suspicious was to be seen upon her, and the port authorities announced that her papers were correct and in order in every detail. Many photographs and columns of descriptive matter were run in the newspapers. 
The crew was reported to be composed principally of Scandinavians, fair-haired, blue-eyed Swedes, Norwegians afflicted with the temperamental melancholy of their race, stolid Russian Finns, and a slight sprinkling of Americans and English. It was noted that there was nothing mercurial and flyaway about them. They seemed weighty men, oppressed by a sad and stolid bovine sort of integrity. A sober seriousness and enormous certitude characterized all of them. They appeared men without nerves and without fear, as though upheld by some overwhelming power, or carried in the hollow of some superhuman hand. The captain, a sad-eyed, strong-featured American, was cartooned in the papers as Gloomy Gus, the pessimistic hero of the comic supplement. Some sea captain recognized the Energon as the yacht Scud, once owned by Maryvale of the New York Yacht Club. With this clue it was soon ascertained that the Scud had disappeared several years before. The agent who sold her reported the purchaser to be merely another agent, a man he had seen neither before nor since. The yacht had been reconstructed at Duffy's shipyard in New Jersey. The change in her name and registry occurred at that time, and had been legally executed. Then the Energon had disappeared in the shroud of mystery. In the meantime, Bassett was going crazy. At least his friends and business associates said so. He kept away from his vast business enterprises and said that he must hold his hands until the other masters of the world could join him in the reconstruction of society. Proof indubitable that Goliath's bee had entered his bonnet. To reporters he had little to say. He was not at liberty, he said, to relate what he had seen on Palgrave Island, but he could assure them that the matter was serious, the most serious thing that had ever happened. His final word was that the world was on the verge of a turnover. For good or ill, he did not know. But one way or the other, he was absolutely convinced that the turnover was coming. As for business, business could go hang. He had seen things he had, and that was all there was to it. There was a great telegraphing during this period between the local federal officials and the state and war departments at Washington. A secret attempt was made late one afternoon to board the Energon and place the captain under arrest. The Attorney General having given the opinion that the captain could be held for the murder of the ten statesmen. The government launch was seen to leave Meg's wharf and steer for the Energon, and that was the last ever seen of the launch and the men on board of it. The government tried to keep the affair hushed up, but the cat was slipped out of the bag by the families of the missing men, and the papers were filled with monstrous versions of the affair. The government now proceeded to extreme measures. The battleship Alaska was ordered to capture the strange yacht, or failing that, to sink her. These were secret instructions, but thousands of eyes from the waterfront and from the shipping in the harbor witnessed what happened that afternoon. The battleship got under way and steamed slowly toward the Energon. At half a mile distant, the battleship blew up. Simply blew up, that was all her shattered frame sinking to the bottom of the bay, a riff-raff of wreckage and a few survivors strewing the surface. Among the survivors was a young lieutenant who had had charge of the wireless on board the Alaska. The reporters got a hold of him first, and he talked. No sooner had the Alaska got under way, he said, than a message was received from the Energon. It was in the International Code, and it was a warning to the Alaska to come no nearer than half a mile. He had sent the message through the speaking-tube immediately to the captain. He did not know anything more, except that the Energon twice repeated the message, and that five minutes afterward the explosion occurred. The captain of the Alaska had perished with his ship, and nothing more was to be learned. 
The Energon, however, promptly hoisted anchor and cleared out to sea. A great clamor was raised by the papers. The government was charged with cowardice and vacillation in its dealings with a mere pleasure yacht and a lunatic who called himself Goliah, and immediate and decisive action was demanded. Also, a great cry went up about the loss of life, especially the wanton killing of the ten statesmen. Goliah promptly replied. In fact, so prompt was his reply that the experts in wireless telegraphy announced that, since it was impossible to send wireless messages so great a distance, Goliah was in their very midst and not on Palgrave Island. Goliah's letter was delivered to the Associated Press by a messenger boy who had been engaged on the street. The letter was as follows. What are a few paltry lives? In your insane wars you destroy millions of lives and think nothing of it. In your fratricidal commercial struggle you kill countless babies, women and men, and you triumphantly call the shambles individualism. I call it anarchy. I am going to put a stop to your wholesale destruction of human beings. I want laughter, not slaughter. Those of you who stand in the way of laughter will get slaughter. Your government is trying to delude you into believing that the destruction of the Alaska was an accident. Know here and now that it was by my orders that the Alaska was destroyed. In a few short months all battleships on all seas will be destroyed or flung to the scrap heap, and all nations shall disarm, fortresses shall be dismantled, armies disbanded, and warfare shall cease from the earth. Mine is the power, I am the will of God. The whole world shall be in vassalage to me, but it shall be a vassalage of peace. I am Goliath. Blow Palgrave Island out of the water, was the headline retort of the newspapers. The government was of the same frame of mind, and the assemblage of fleets began. Walter Bassett broke out in ineffectual protest, but was swiftly silenced by the threat of a lunacy commission. Goliath remained silent. Against Palgrave Island five great fleets were hurled, the Asiatic Squadron, the South Pacific Squadron, the North Pacific Squadron, the Caribbean Squadron, and half of the North Atlantic Squadron, the two latter coming through the Panama Canal. I have the honor to report that we sighted Palgrave Island on the evening of April 29th, ran the report of Captain Johnson of the battleship North Dakota to the Secretary of the Navy. The Asiatic Squadron was delayed and did not arrive until the morning of April 30. A council of the admirals was held, and it was decided to attack early next morning. The destroyer Swift Seven crept in unmolested and reported no warlike preparations on the island. It noted several small merchant steamers in the harbor, and the existence of a small village in a hopelessly exposed position that could be swept by our fire. It had been decided that all the vessels should rush in, scattered, upon the island, opening fire at three miles, and continuing to the edge of the reef, there to retain loose formation and engage. Palgrave Island repeatedly warned us by wireless in the international code to keep outside the ten-mile limit, but no heed was paid to the warnings. The North Dakota did not take part in the movement of the morning of May 1st. This was due to a slight accident of the preceding night that temporarily disabled her steering gear. The morning of May 1st broke clear and calm. There was a slight breeze from the southwest that quickly died away. The North Dakota lay twelve miles off the island. At the signal, the squadrons charged in upon the island from all sides at full speed. Our wireless receiver continued to tick off warnings from the island. The ten-mile limit was passed, and nothing happened. I watched through my glasses. At five miles, nothing happened. At four miles, nothing happened. At three miles, the New York, in the lead on our side of the island, opened fire. 
She fired only one shot. Then she blew up. The rest of the vessels never fired a shot. They began to blow up, everywhere, before our eyes. Several swerved about and started back, but they failed to escape. The destroyer Dart 30 nearly made the ten-mile limit when she blew up. She was the last survivor. No harm came to the North Dakota, and that night, the steering gear being repaired, I gave orders to sail for San Francisco. To say that the United States was stunned is but to expose the inadequacy of language. The whole world was stunned. It confronted that blight of the human brain, the unprecedented. Human endeavor was a jest, a monstrous futility, when a lunatic on a lonely island who owned a yacht and an exposed village could destroy five of the proudest fleets of Christendom. And how had he done it? Nobody knew. The scientists lay down in the dust of the common road and wailed and gibbered. They did not know. Military experts committed suicide by scores. The mighty fabric of warfare they had fashioned was a gossamer veil rent asunder by a miserable lunatic. It was too much for their sanity. Mere human reason could not withstand the shock. As the savage is crushed by the sleight of hand of the witch-doctor, so was the world crushed by the magic of Goliath. How did he do it? It was the awful face of the unknown upon which the world gazed, and by which it was frightened out of the memory of its proudest achievements. But all the world was not stunned. There was the invariable exception, the island empire of Japan. Drunken with the wine of success, deep-quaffed, without superstition and without faith in aught but its own ascendant star, laughing at the wreckage of science and mad with the pride of race, it went forth upon the way of war. America's fleets had been destroyed. From the battlements of heaven the multitudinous ancestral shades of Japan leaned down. The opportunity, God-given, had come. The Mikado was in truth a brother to the gods. The war monsters of Japan were loosed in mighty fleets. The Philippines were gathered in as a child gathers a nosegay. It took longer for the battleships to travel to Hawaii, to Panama, and to the Pacific coast. The United States was panic-stricken, and there arose the powerful party of dishonorable peace. In the midst of the clamor, the Energon arrived in San Francisco Bay, and Goliath spoke once more. There was a little brush as the Energon came in, and a few explosions of magazines occurred along the war-tunneled hills as the coast defenses went to smash. Also, the blowing up of the submarine mines in the Golden Gate made a remarkably fine display. Goliath's message to the people of San Francisco, dated as usual from Palgrave Island, was published in the papers. It ran, Peace? Peace be with you. You shall have peace. I have spoken to this purpose before and give you me peace. Leave my yacht Energon alone. Commit one overt act against her, and not one stone in San Francisco shall stand upon another. Tomorrow, let all good citizens go out upon the hills that slope down to the sea. Go with music and laughter and garlands. Make festival for the new age that is dawning. Be like children upon your hills, and witness the passing of war. Do not miss the opportunity. It is your last chance to behold what henceforth you will be compelled to seek in museums of antiquity. I promise you a merry day. Goliah The madness of magic was in the air. With the people it was as if all their gods had crashed and the heavens still stood. Order and law had passed away from the universe, but the sun still shone, the wind still blew, the flowers still bloomed. That was the amazing thing about it that water should continue to run downhill was a miracle. All the stabilities of the human mind and human achievement were crumbling. 
The one stable thing that remained was Goliah, a madman on an island. And so it was that the whole population of San Francisco went forth the next day in colossal frolic upon the hills that overlooked the sea. Brass bands and banners went forth, brewery wagons and Sunday school picnics, all the strange heterogeneous groupings of swarming metropolitan life. On the sea rim rose the smoke from the funnels of a hundred hostile vessels of war, all converging upon the helpless, undefended Golden Gate. And not all undefended, for out through the Golden Gate moved the Energon, a tiny toy of white, rolling like a straw in the stiff sea on the bar where a strong ebb-tide ran in the teeth of the summer sea-breeze. But the Japanese were cautious. Their thirty- and forty-thousand-ton battleships slowed down half a dozen miles offshore and maneuvered into ponderous evolutions, while tiny scout-boats, lean six-funneled destroyers, ran in, cutting blackly the flashing sea like so many sharks. But compared with the Energon, they were leviathans. Compared with them, the Energon was as the sword of the Archangel Michael, and they the forerunners of the hosts of hell. But the flashing of the sword the good people of San Francisco gathered on her hills never saw. Mysterious, invisible, it cleaved the air and smote the mightiest blows of combat the world had ever witnessed. The good people of San Francisco saw little and understood less. They saw only a million and a half tons of brine-cleaving, thunder-flinging fabrics hurled skyward and smashed back in ruin to sink into the sea. It was all over in five minutes. Remained upon the wide expanse of sea, only the Energon, rolling white and toy-like on the bar. Goliath spoke to the Mikado and the elder statesmen. It was only an ordinary cable message, dispatched from San Francisco by the captain of the Energon, but it was of sufficient moment to cause the immediate withdrawal of Japan from the Philippines and of her surviving fleets from the sea. Japan, the skeptical, was converted. She had felt the weight of Goliath's arm, and meekly she obeyed when Goliath commanded her to dismantle her war vessels and to turn the metal into useful appliances for the arts of peace. In all the ports, navy yards, machine shops, and foundries of Japan, tens of thousands of brown-skinned artisans converted the war monsters into myriads of useful things, such as plowshares, Goliath insisted on plowshares, gasoline engines, bridge trusses, telephone and telegraph wires, steel rails, locomotives, and rolling stock for railways. It was a world penance for a world to see and paltry indeed it made appear that earlier penance barefooted in the snow of an emperor to a pope for daring to squabble over temporal power. Goliath's next summons was to the ten leading scientists of the United States. This time there was no hesitancy in obeying. The savants were ludicrously prompt, some of them waiting in San Francisco for weeks so as not to miss the scheduled sailing date. They departed on the Energon on June 15th, and while they were on the sea, on the way to Palgrave Island, Goliath performed another spectacular feat. Germany and France were preparing to fly at each other's throats. Goliath commanded peace. They ignored the command, tacitly agreeing to fight it out on land where it seemed safer for the belligerently inclined. Goliath set the date of June 19th for the cessation of hostile preparations. Both countries mobilized their armies on June 18th and hurled them at the common frontier. And on June 19th, Goliath struck. All generals, war secretaries, and jingo leaders in the two countries died on that day. And that day two vast armies, undirected, like strayed sheep, walked over each other's frontiers and fraternized. But the great German warlord 
had escaped. It was learned afterward by hiding in a huge safe where were stored the secret archives of his empire, and when he emerged he was a very pentient warlord, and like the Mikado of Japan he was set to work beating his sword-blades into plowshares and pruning-hooks. But in the escape of the German emperor was discovered a great significance. The scientists of the world plucked up courage, got back their nerve. One thing was conclusively evident. Goliath's power was not magic. Law still reigned in the universe. Goliath's power had limitations, else had the German emperor not escaped by secretly hiding in a steel safe. Many learned articles on the subject appeared in the magazines. The ten top scientists arrived back from Palgrave Island on July 6. Heavy platoons of police protected them from the reporters. No, they had not seen Goliath, they said, in the one official interview that was vouchsafed. But they had talked with him, and they had seen things. They were not permitted to state definitely all that they had seen and heard, but they could say that the world was about to be revolutionized. Goliath was in the possession of a tremendous discovery that placed all the world at his mercy, and it was a good thing for the world that Goliath was merciful. The ten scientists proceeded directly to Washington on a special train, where for days they were closeted with the heads of government, while the nation hung breathless on the outcome. But the outcome was a long time in arriving. From Washington the President issued commands to the masters and leading figures of the nation. Everything was secret. Day by day deputations of bankers, railway lords, captains of industry, and Supreme Court justices arrived, and when they arrived, they remained. The weeks dragged on, and then on. August 25th began the famous issuance of proclamations. Congress and the Senate cooperated with the President in this, while the Supreme Court justices gave their sanction and the money lords and captains of industry agreed. War was declared upon the capitalist masters of the nation. Martial law was declared over the whole United States, and the supreme power was vested in the President. In one day, child labor in the whole country was abolished. It was done by decree, and the United States was prepared with its army to enforce its decree. In the same day, all women factory workers were dismissed to their homes, and all the sweatshops were closed. But we cannot make profits, wailed the petty capitalists. Fools, was the retort of Goliath, as if the meaning of life were profits. Give up your businesses and your profit-mongering. But there is nobody to buy our business, they wailed. Buy and sell. Is that all the meaning life has for you, replied Goliath? You have nothing to sell. Turn over your little cut-throating anarchistic businesses to the government so that they may be rationally organized and operated. And the next day, by decree, the government began taking possession of all factories, shops, mines, ships, railroads, and producing lands. The nationalization of the means of production and distribution went on apace. Here and there were skeptical capitalists of the moment. They were made prisoners and hauled to Palgrave Island, and when they returned they always acquiesced in what the government was doing. A little later the journey to Palgrave Island became unnecessary. When objection was made, the reply of the officials was, Goliath has spoken which was another way of saying, he must be obeyed. The captains of industry became heads of departments. It was found that civil engineers, for instance, worked just as well in government employ as before they had worked in private employ. It was found that men of high executive ability could not violate their nature. They could not escape exercising their executive ability any more than a crab could escape crawling or a bird could escape flying. And so it was that all the splendid force of the men who had previously worked for themselves was now put to work for the good of society. 
The half-dozen great railway chiefs cooperated in the organizing of a national system of railways that was amazingly efficacious. Never again was there such a thing as a car shortage. These chiefs were not the Wall Street railway magnates, but they were the men who formerly had done the real work while in the employ of the Wall Street magnates. Wall Street was dead. There was no more buying and selling and speculating. Nobody had anything to buy or sell. There was nothing in which to speculate. Put the stock gamblers to work, said Goliah. Give those that are young and that so desire a chance to learn useful trades. Put the drummers and salesmen and advertising agents and real estate agents to work, said Goliah. And by the hundreds of thousands the erstwhile useless middlemen and parasites went into useful occupations. The four hundred thousand idle gentlemen of the country who had lived upon incomes were likewise put to work. Then there were a lot of helpless men in high places who were cleared out. The remarkable thing about this being that they were cleared out by their own fellows. Of this class were the professional politicians, whose wisdom and power consisted of manipulating machine politics and of grafting. There was no longer any graft, since there were no private interests to purchase special privileges. No bribes were offered to legislators, and legislators for the first time legislated for the people. The result was that men who were efficient, not in corruption, but in direction, found their way into the legislatures. With this rational organization of society, amazing results were brought about. The national day's work was eight hours, and yet production increased. In spite of the great permanent improvements, and of the immense amount of energy consumed in systematizing the competitive chaos of society, production doubled and tripled upon itself. The standard of living increased, and still consumption could not keep up with production. The maximum working age was decreased to fifty years, to forty-nine years, and to forty-eight years. The minimum working age went up from sixteen years to eighteen years. The eight-hour day became a seven-hour day, and in a few months the national working day was reduced to five hours. In the meantime, glimmerings were being caught, not of the identity of Goliath, but of how he had worked and prepared for his assuming control of the world. Little things leaked out, clues were followed up, apparently unrelated things were pieced together. Strange stories of blacks stolen from Africa were remembered, of Chinese and Japanese contract coolies who had mysteriously disappeared, of lonely South Sea islands raided and their inhabitants carried away, stories of yachts and merchant steamers mysteriously purchased that had disappeared and their descriptions of which remotely tallied with the crafts that had carried the Orientals and Africans and Islanders away. Where had Goliah got the sinews of war was the question, and the surmised answer was, by exploiting these stolen laborers. It was they that lived in the exposed village on Palgrave Island. It was the product of their toil that had purchased the yachts and merchant steamers and enabled Goliath's agents to permeate society and carry out his will. And what was the product of their toil that had given Goliath the wealth necessary to realize his plans? Commercial radium, the newspapers proclaimed, and radiite and radiosol, and argadium, and argite, and the mysterious golite that had proved so valuable in metallurgy. These were the new compounds discovered in the first decade of the twentieth century, the commercial and scientific use of which had become so enormous in the second decade. The line of fruit boats that ran from Hawaii to San Francisco was declared to be the property of Goliath. This was surmise, for no other owners could be discovered, and the agents who had handled the shipments of the fruit boats were only agents. Since no one else owned the fruit boats, then Goliah must own them. The point of which is, 
that it leaked out that the major portion of the world's supply in these precious compounds was brought to San Francisco by those very fruit boats. That the whole chain of surmise was correct was proved in later years when Goliath's slaves were liberated and honorably pensioned by the international government of the world. It was at that time that the seal of secrecy was lifted from the lips of his agents and higher emissaries, and those that chose revealed much of the mystery of Goliath's organization and methods. His destroying angels, however, remained forever dumb. Who the men were who went forth to the high places and killed at his bidding will be unknown to the end of time. For kill they did, by means of that very subtle and then mysterious force that Goliath had discovered and named Energon. But at that time, Energon, the little giant that was destined to do the work of the world, was unknown and undreamt of. Only Goliath knew, and he kept his secret well. Even his agents, who were armed with it, and who, in the case of the yacht Energon, destroyed a mighty fleet of warships by exploding their magazines, knew not what the subtle and potent force was, nor how it was manufactured. They knew only one of its many uses, and in that one use they had been instructed by Goliath. It is now well known that radium and radiite and radiosol and all the other compounds were by-products of the manufacturer of Energon by Goliath from the sunlight. But at that time nobody knew what Energon was, and Goliath continued to awe and rule the world. One of the uses of Energon was in wireless telegraphy. It was by its means that Goliath was able to communicate with his agents all over the world. At that time the apparatus required by an agent was so clumsy that it could not be packed in anything less than a fair-sized steamer trunk. Today, thanks to the improvements of Hensol, the perfected apparatus can be carried in a coat pocket. It was in December 1924 that Goliath sent out his famous Christmas letter, part of the text of which is given here. So far, while I have kept the rest of the nations from each other's throats, I have devoted myself particularly to the United States. Now I have not given to the people of the United States a rational social organization. What I have done has been to compel them to make that organization for themselves. There is more laughter in the United States these days, and there is more sense. Food and shelter are no longer obtained by the anarchistic methods of so-called individualism, but are now well-nigh automatic. And the beauty of it is that the people of the United States have achieved all this for themselves. I did not achieve it for them. I repeat, they achieved it for themselves. All that I did was to put the fear of death in the hearts of the few that sat in the high places and obstructed the coming of rationality and laughter. The fear of death made those in the high places get out of the way. That was all, and gave the intelligence of man a chance to realize itself socially. In the year that is to come, I shall devote myself to the rest of the world. I shall put the fear of death in the hearts of all that sit in the high places in all the nations. And they will do as they have done in the United States. Get down out of the high places and give the intelligence of man a chance for social rationality. All the nations shall tread the path the United States is now on. And when all the nations are well along that path, I shall have something else for them. But first they must travel that path for themselves. They must demonstrate that the intelligence of mankind today, with the mechanical energy now at its disposal, is capable of organizing society so that food and shelter be made automatic, labor be reduced to a three-hour day, and joy and laughter be made universal. And when that is accomplished, not by me, but by the intelligence of mankind, then I shall make a present to the world of a new mechanical energy. This is my discovery, 
This energon is nothing more or less than the cosmic energy that resides in the solar rays. When it is harnessed by mankind, it will do the work of the world. There will be no more multitudes of miners slaving out their lives in the bowels of the earth. No more sooty firemen and greasy engineers. All may dress in white if they so will. The work of life will have become play, and young and old will be the children of joy. And the business of living will become joy, and they will compete with one another in achieving ethical concepts and spiritual heights, in fashioning pictures and songs and stories, in statecraft and beautycraft, in the sweat and the endeavor of the wrestler and the runner and the player of games. All will compete, not for sordid coin and base material reward, but for the joy that shall be theirs in the development and vigor of flesh, and in the development and keenness of spirit. All will be joy smiths, and their task shall be to beat out laughter from the ringing anvil of life. And now one word for the immediate future. On New Year's Day, all nations shall disarm, all fortresses and warships shall be dismantled, and all armies shall be disbanded. Goliath On New Year's Day, all the world disarmed. The millions of soldiers and sailors and workmen in the standing armies, in the natives, and in the countless arsenals, machine shops, and factories for the manufacturer of war machinery were dismissed to their homes. These many millions of men, as well as their costly war machinery, had hitherto been supported on the back of labor. They now went into useful occupations, and the released labor giant heaved a mighty sigh of relief. The policing of the world was left to the peace officers, and was purely social, whereas war had been distinctly anti-social. Ninety percent of the crimes against society had been crimes against private property. With the passing of private property, at least in the means of production and with the organization of industry that gave every man a chance, the crimes against private property practically ceased. The police forces everywhere were reduced repeatedly, and again and again. Nearly all occasional and habitual criminals ceased voluntarily from their depredations. There was no longer any need for them to commit crime. They merely changed with changing conditions. A smaller number of criminals was put into hospitals and cured, and the remnant of the hopelessly criminal and degenerate was segregated. And the courts in all countries were likewise decreased in number again and again. Ninety-five percent of all civil cases had been squabbles over property. Conflicts of property rights, lawsuits, contests of wills, breaches of contract, bankruptcies, etc. With the passing of private property, this 95% of the cases that cluttered the courts also passed. The courts became shadows, attenuated ghosts, rudimentary vestiges of the anarchistic times that had preceded the coming of Goliath. The year 1925 was a lively year in the world's history. Goliath ruled the world with a strong hand. Kings and emperors journeyed to Palgrave Island, saw the wonders of Energon, and went away with the fear of death in their hearts to abdicate thrones and crowns and hereditary licenses. When Goliath spoke to politicians, so-called statesmen, they obeyed or died. He dictated universal reforms, dissolved refractory parliaments, and to the great conspiracy that was formed of munitious money lords and captains of industry, he sent his destroying angels. The time is past for fooling, he told them. You are anachronisms. You stand in the way of humanity. To the scrap heap with you. To those that protested, and they were many, he said, This is no time for logomachy. You can argue for centuries. It is what you have done in the past. I have no time for argument. 
get out of the way. With the exception of putting a stop to war and of indicating the broad general plan, Goliah did nothing. By putting the fear of death into the hearts of those that sat in the high places and obstructed progress, Goliah made the opportunity for the unshackled intelligence of the best social thinkers of the world to exert itself. Goliah left all the multitudinous details of reconstruction to these social thinkers. He wanted them to prove that they were able to do it, and they proved it. It was due to their initiative that the White Plague was stamped out from the world. It was due to them, and in spite of a deal of protesting from the sentimentalists, that all the extreme hereditary ineficence were segregated and denied marriage. Goliah had nothing whatever to do with the instituting of the Colleges of Invention. This idea originated practically simultaneously in the minds of thousands of social thinkers. The time was ripe for the realization of the idea, and everywhere arose the splendid institutions of invention. For the first time, the ingenuity of man was loosed upon the problem of simplifying life instead of upon the making of money-earning devices. The affairs of life, such as house-cleaning, dish and window-washing, dust-removing and scrubbing and clothes-washing, and all the endless sordid and necessary details, were simplified by invention until they became automatic. We of today cannot realize the barbarously filthy and slavish lives of those that lived prior to 1925. The international government of the world was another idea that sprang simultaneously into the minds of thousands. The successful realization of this idea was a surprise to many, but as a surprise it was nothing that received by the mildly Protestant sociologists and biologists when irrefutable facts exploded the doctrine of Malthus. With leisure and joy in the world, with an immensely higher standard of living, and with the enormous spaciousness of opportunity for recreation, development, and pursuit of beauty and nobility and all the higher attributes, the birth rate fell, and fell astoundingly. People ceased breeding like cattle, and better than that, it was immediately noticeable that a higher average of children was being born. The doctrine of Malthus was knocked into a cocked hat, or flung to the scrap heap, as Goliah would have put it. All that Goliah had predicted that the intelligence of mankind could accomplish with the mechanical energy at its disposal came to pass. Human dissatisfaction practically disappeared. The elderly people were the great grumblers, but when they were honorably pensioned by society as they passed the age of limit for work, the great majority ceased grumbling. They found themselves better off in their idle old days under the new regime, enjoying vastly more pleasure and comforts than they had in their busy and toilsome youth under the old regime. The younger generation had easily adapted itself to the changed order, and the very young had never known anything else. The sum of human happiness had increased enormously. The world had become gay and sane. Even the old fogies of professors of sociology who had opposed with might and main the coming of the new regime made no complaint. They were a score of times better remunerated than in old days, and they were not worked nearly so hard. Besides, they were busy revising sociology and writing new textbooks on the subject. Here and there, it is true, there were atavisms, men who yearned for the flesh-pots and cannibal feasts of the old alleged individualism, creatures long of teeth and savage of claw who wanted to prey upon their fellow men. But they were looked upon as diseased, and were treated in hospitals. A small remnant, however, proved incurable, and was confined in asylums, and denied marriage. Thus there was no progeny to inherit their atavistic tendencies. As the years went by, Goliah dropped out of running the world. There was nothing for him to run. The world was running itself and doing it smoothly and beautifully. 
1937, Goliah made his long-promised present of Energon to the world. He himself had devised a thousand ways in which the little giant could do the work of the world, all of which he made public at the same time. But instantly the colleges of invention seized upon Energon and utilized it in a hundred thousand additional ways. In fact, as Goliah confessed in his letter of March 1938, the colleges of invention cleared up several puzzling features of Energon that had baffled him during the preceding years. With the introduction of the use of Energon, the two-hour workday was cut down almost to nothing. As Goliah had predicted, work indeed became play, and so tremendous was man's productive capacity, due to Energon and the rational social utilization of it, that the humblest citizen enjoyed leisure and time and opportunity for an immensely greater abundance of living than had the most favored under the old anarchistic system. Nobody had ever seen Goliah, and all the peoples began to clamor for their savior to appear. While the world did not minimize his discovery of Energon, it was decided that greater than that was his wide social vision. He was a superman, a scientific superman, and the curiosity of the world to see him had become well-nigh unbearable. It was 1941, after much hesitancy on his part, that he finally emerged from Palgrave Island. He arrived on June 6th in San Francisco, and for the first time since his retirement to Palgrave Island, the world looked upon his face, and the world was disappointed. Its imagination had been touched. A heroic figure had been made out of Goliath. He was the man or the demigod, rather, who had turned the planet over. The deeds of Alexander, Caesar, Genghis Khan, and Napoleon were as the play of babies alongside his colossal achievements. And ashore in San Francisco, and through its streets, stepped and rode a little old man, sixty-five years of age, well-preserved with a pink-and-white complexion and a bald spot on his head the size of an apple. He was short-sighted and wore spectacles, but when the spectacles were removed, his were quizzical blue eyes, like a child's filled with mild wonder at the world. Also, his eyes had a way of twinkling, accompanied by a screwing up of the face, as if he laughed at the huge joke he had played upon the world, trapping it, in spite of itself, into happiness and laughter. For a scientific superman and a world tyrant, he had remarkable weaknesses. He loved sweets and he was inordinately fond of salted almonds and salted pecans, especially the latter. He always carried a paper bag of them in his pocket, and he had a way of saying frequently that the chemism of his nature demanded such fare. Perhaps his most astonishing failing was cats. He had an ineradicable aversion to that domestic animal. It will be remembered that he fainted dead away with sudden fright while speaking in Brotherhood Palace, when the janitor's cat walked out upon the stage and brushed against his legs. But no sooner had he revealed himself to the world than he was identified. Old-time friends had no difficulty in recognizing him as Percival Stoltz, the German-American who in 1898 had worked in the Union Ironworks, and who for two years at that time had been secretary of Branch 369 of the International Brotherhood of Machinists. It was in 1901, then 25 years of age, that he had taken special scientific courses at the University of California, at the same time supporting himself by soliciting what was then known as life insurance. His records as a student are preserved in the University Museum, and they are unenviable. He is remembered by the professors he sat under chiefly for his absent-mindedness. Undoubtedly, even then he was catching glimpses of the wide visions that later were to be his. His naming himself Goliath and shrouding himself in mystery was his little joke, as he later explained. 
as Goliath or any other thing like that, he said, he was able to touch the imagination of the world and turn it over. But as Percival Stoltz, wearing side whiskers and spectacles and weighing 118 pounds, he would have been unable to turn over a pecan, not even a salted pecan. But the world quickly got over its disappointment in his personal appearance and antecedents. It knew him and revered him as the mastermind of the ages, and it loved him for himself, for his quizzical, short-sighted eyes and the inimitable way in which he screwed up his face when he laughed. It loved him for his simplicity and comradeship and warm humanness, and for his fondness for salted pecans and the aversion to cats, and today in the wonder city of Asgard, rises in awful beauty that monument to him that dwarfs the pyramids and all the monstrous blood-stained monuments of antiquity. And on that monument, as all know, is inscribed in imperishable bronze the prophecy and the fulfillment. All will be joy-smiths, and their task shall be to beat out laughter from the ringing anvil of life. Editorial Note this remarkable production is the work of Harry Beckwith, a student in the Lowell High School of San Francisco, and it is here reproduced chiefly because of the youth of its author. Far be it from our policy to burden our readers with ancient history, and when it is known that Harry Beckwith was only fifteen when the foregoing was written, our motives will be understood. Goliath won the premiere for high school composition in 2254. And last year, Harry Beckwith took advantage of the privilege earned by electing to spend six months in Asgard. The wealth of historical detail, the atmosphere of the times, and the mature style of the composition are especially noteworthy in one so young. End of Goliath by Jack London Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Brian. I'm Seth. I'm Misa. And we're going to talk about a 1908 uh, short story by uh, Jack London called Goliath. It's, um, I think in some editions it says like an essay of utopia or something like that. Have you guys seen that around the internets? I have. I wish I was frantically researching this morning and I came across something like that, but I didn't note it down. Yeah. It's, I've seen that, but I think that may have been a collection that it appeared in. Yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's kind of a weird. Um, it's. It, I love the. I love the start of this story. I. It just blows my mind. It's just so direct. Yeah. And as soon as I started reading it, I thought, "There's, uh, there's. It's like there's somebody has watched. Uh, what's that? That movie with a giant computer uh, that takes over the world." Uh, war games? No. Um, Colossus. The Colossus, the Forbin oh, Project. I have not seen that. I've heard great things about that. Oh, right. It's fun. Yeah, and I thought I thought Goliath was a computer. <laughs> when I first started reading, I'm like, oh, it, it's, it sounds like Colossus, you know, Goliath. Yeah, I mean, in fact, I think I was looking on the ISFTB, the Internet Science Fiction Database, and I think... I believe that's the source, but it showed a 19, uh, 1983 German reprint. They uh -huh. actually called the story Goliath. So. Oh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, Goliath, I think, is another name for Goliath. Um, there is some significance to the name other than uh, uh, it being just, you know, a reference to the Bible as well. I think uh, in my limited research on what what might have inspired the name Goliath for 
the the character. Um, Jack London was, you know, a Pacific uh, boat guy, right? He loved boating. And yeah. uh, on the West Coast, there was a steamship that was very famous um, that had, I think, just it probably died in 1894 or something like that, but it was like a 50 year steamship and it was one of the major um, West coast ships when the United States was still doing the United States on the West. I I saw that too. I didn't really read up on it, but it definitely jives with his seafaring experience. Yeah. And, uh, there's a, there was a similar one, uh, in Canada called the beaver, which, um, (laughs) I think is mentioned there. Um, I guess he scrapped that title for the story. (laughs) Well, um, but the thing is, is it, it's, it's important in the sense that it's, it's, um, it would have formed his background, but also this, this is very, uh, Brian, you're a big fan of meta stuff, right? There's a lot of meta stuff going on in the back end of this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, now you've got me thinking of a Canadian supervillain called the Beaver. The Beaver. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I'm, well, I'm going to be useless for this call now. You know, <laughs> it, it's it's pretty funny if you look at the history of of Canada, uh, and I explain it to you know a lot of students. Um, I say, you know, this country used to be owned by a giant corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hudson's Bay Company owned everything, all, all the waters that poured into Hudson's Bay, which is everything up to the border of British Columbia uh, up right. to, you know, it's, it's massive. In fact, it extended down deep into the United States now. Um, yeah. You know, the Columbia River, uh, Fort uh-huh. Vancouver, um, it was a massive undertaking. And it, it's not unique either in, in colonial uh, India. I mean, that whole country was basically owned yeah. by the East India the Company. East Company, yeah. Yeah, and so these these ships um, that they you know they had their own private armies, they had you know their own sh- fleets, port systems, monies, yeah, yeah, and it it's it looms large in the history of then. It doesn't you know it doesn't sort of echo in our minds as much, but no, for but Jack London it would have been very much in in his mind. I think. Yeah, I mean, this is a product of of that whole, what they call the Gilded Age era, late 19th, mm-hmm. 20th century. I mean, the whole idea of captains of industry. Is- Did you see, like, the fir- ver- one of the very first things that Goliath commands is that uh, children not be forced to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. The, I mean, I think that that's got to have happened shortly after 1908. I, I hadn't realized it hadn't happened by that point. Yeah, I mean, by that point, yeah, they were starting to, Roosevelt and Taft were starting you know, the do the trust mm-hmm. busting of busting up the big um, mm-hmm. uh, conglomerates and, and such. So there was, the progressive movement was kind of starting. So I guess it's, you know, this is kind of situated in that, in that you period. Also get the, you get the socialists in the U.S. actually being a serious, um, a serious presence. And I think there's a joke about Debs in here. Mm-hmm, there is. Oh, I because, missed it. Because I know he's not named. I think it's either Debs or Brian that he's joking at. But the um, there's a perennial presidential candidate. Mm-hmm. Oh and, yeah, and they called him Goliath. They thought that was him. Which which makes me think, you know, in part, because uh, uh, you know, there Debs is the man of the people. You know, mm-hmm. um, always always understated. Um, but no, but uh, 
you, you have socialism rising at this period. And in fact, that was a 19th century communist demand was to end child labor. Mm-hmm. It shows Marx writes really movingly about this in the 1840s mm-hmm. and 1870s. Um, no, I, I, you know, it, it, this leads me, I mean, you think about a giant monster, you know, like Goliath or a giant villain or a giant presence. And it makes you, it, it can, I, I think going in the direction of the East India Company or the Hudson Bay Company is great. I, I also think of uh, Hobbes' Leviathan mm-hmm. as an example. I mean, and, and that's what we're thinking that Goliath is the villain, though. You know, that, that was really interesting how, they, how he twisted it mm-hmm. midway through the story. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that he is actually a little guy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, when, when we are finally in the reveal, right? We're yeah. disappointed, but so is everyone else. <laughs> yeah, and they get over it. They do get over it. And, and I mean, the, it, what I love about this story is that it shows, like, Jack London, he doesn't care about characterization all that much. What he cares about is plowing through, getting those ideas out there. Yeah. This is such a short... Through? Sorry, what did you say? Plowshering through? Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much happening. And I was thinking, why did he do it this way? And I think, you know, this is a utopian story. Um, it... It's got a lot of dystopian elements yeah. in it, but um, I think he didn't think, you know, he, he's going for the utopian end of it. But this is actually, uh, I would say, sort of a response to a lot of the utopian writing that would be happening just just prior and still since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, in that the question is always, okay, yeah, but how do we get there from here? Yeah. All we need is Energon, apparently. <laughs> apparently. Um, okay, so why exactly. is that a Transformers thing? Yeah, yes. uh, right. So Energon I think Transformers, is... uh, whoever invented Transformers, accidentally picked that up. Do you, do you think he was very familiar with uh, Nikola Tesla? Oh, I would guess. Because so. I don't remember him writing about it, but he's he's sort of but, a Tesla character, this, right? Well, but this whole thing is really seemed really Tesla esque, like the unlimited energy supply that he got from like the sun mm-hmm. and then his big, huge weapon, like disintegrate people. Didn't Tesla have something like that as well? Yeah, well, um, <laughs> he, he or, seemed or, to have he he did. something like that. Like I, I, I read something about it in, in Wikipedia that they, that he would, he could have a, a, a weapon that could send concentrated beams of particles through the free air of such tremendous energy that they will bring down a fleet of, 10,000 enemy airplanes at a distance of 200 miles from a defending nation's border. Mm. Wow. I didn't have but, um, you know, it's, it's like, sounds like the same sort of thing. Well, it's interesting because at the beginning of the story, um, when the first, I guess, nine guys are disintegrated, um, I was going, oh, my God, this is, this is fascinating. But more importantly, not only does he have a, you know, a disin- disintegration ray or whatever it is, it's like a transporter that disintegrates you from anywhere in the world. Um, he also has a palantir. He can he can see wherever anyone is at any time and see what they're doing. And yeah. the only guy he couldn't do it to was the emperor of Germany. And the and um, his his minions have cell phones essentially. Yeah, it's yeah. true. I, I mean, it's it's kind of like you know the NSA knows what you're doing. They know where you are. They know you know where you're going to be. Uh, but they they don't have the disintegration right. They have drones. Yeah. Um, and it, it it 
it's it's made very clear that he's because he's going for laughter, which is I think the most hilarious Ethiopian <laughs> goal. It's so funny um, because he's going for that. He's not a dystopic guy. I mean, he's sort of like Santa Claus. He can see everything and he brings gifts at the true. very end. It's he true. knows if you've been naughty or not. Nice. Yeah, if you've been naughty, <laughs> so you get disintegrated. Totally. <laughs> But yeah, he's he's living on this Paul Grave Island. Um, that I was thinking about that the second time I was reading through. It's like Paul. Okay, I got it. Like a covering over a, uh, a coffin and grave. Okay, I got it. <laughs> you know, it's like this is serious. <laughs> um, but there's no such island. I I did the looking. Um, yeah. Uh, but this isn't the first time he's written about. Uh, you know. South Sea islands that have mad scientists on them. Um, that's why I was saying it was kind of a quasi sequel to A Thousand Deaths. Totally, totally. I was thinking of that, which I actually listened to in audiobook format. Just saying. So you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's it's uh, in the, in that one I was saying you know I'm not sure that the protagonist wasn't female because the narrator was female and it doesn't actually say it says I I was a boy. I was educated as a boy of the English middle class. Well, that could uh, be. Uh, yes, yes. But um, there's, there's something, I mean, I don't think these stories are connected other than by, you know, the disintegration way in, in a South Sea island. The, yeah, and, and things he was obsessed with, you know, just yeah. London Road nonstop, just constantly writing. And, mm-hmm. and like, like Philip K. Dick's 1960s stories, you know, when someone is writing that frantically and putting out that much stuff, you start to see echoes. and. Mm-hmm. Like, sure. mm-hmm. And the same year that this was written um, was a previous book we did, uh, The Iron Heel. Oh, wow. Oh, was it the same year? Same year, 1908. Wow. And this is kind of the flip side. This is the happy ending. Yeah, and of course, at the end, what do we get? We get a description that, oh, uh, this is a short story written by a teenager. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the whole time I was reading it, I was wondering, well, does this experiment work out of Goliath? And then, you know, we get the answer to that. So that was... Yeah, really and, uh, well, yeah, but it's also a cheat, right? Well, um, kind of, but it worked. It, he says, uh, this remarkable production is the work of Harry Beckwith, <laughs> a student in the Lowell High School of San Francisco, and it was re- reproduced here chiefly because of the youth of its author. So basically he's saying... Uh, we can excuse any problems with this writing because he's so young. And at the same time, it's so good. because he's Yeah, uh, yeah. The wealth of historical detail, the atmosphere, the times, and the mature style of composition. <laughs> I know. <laughs> he's cheating. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, I mean, that's, that was my cynical reading of it too. But. And it's set in 2254, right? So he's looking back at the at – the, the uh, events, maybe. Are, are, are we even supposed to know if this is a true story? I, I thought that he was he was reiterating a, like what ha- a history. I didn't take it as a story. Yeah. I mean, it's it, in that other. He doesn't say story. He says it's yeah. Company. It's so it could be like an it's supposed to be. It's an essay. Yeah. Um, which is fine. Uh, but then, of course, we get the other connection to to the 1908 uh, a novel. Iron Heel with the city of Asgard. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and that makes me think, you know, you're asking about whether it's a story or a history, and you know, I actually think it's might be somewhere in between. I mean, Asgard, you know, makes me think of obviously Norse mythology, and so it makes me think of of mythology in the sense that, you know, a high school student nowadays might be writing about the American Revolution, you know, I mean get most of the things right, but 
there are a lot of elements of that that have been mythologized and that some of that might have crept into the culture. I mean, you just, if you're going to go meta with this, it's interesting to think about. Well, look, think of all those, uh, those Finns and Swedes and Norwegians, the dour uh, Russian Finns or whatever that are on board that, that okay, ship. Well, this is, this is a, well, these are two different things. I mean, one is that the meta aspect, I, I think you're right. I think this does make us distrust the uh, composition a bit. It makes you wonder where in the story do we have the equivalent of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree mm-hmm. Uh, but the other side is, see, this is like my greatest frustration with London, who I love. I mean, I always love Jacob London, is that he was hip deep in the racism that was racing through yep. his time. Absolutely. I, yeah. look, I mean, look at the way he structures that, that island. It's, it, we got the slaves from Africa, right? Yeah. And then and the, the American captain of the ship. And then yep. the German running the show. And then you, the German-American. Yeah. And, and then the, uh, the, the crew is, let's see... Swedes, Norwegians, Finns, Russian Finns, a slight spinkling of Americans. Yes, smattering Americans. You have some Asian yeah, lackeys in there somewhere just above the um, <laughs> Africans, too. See, it's the Ubermenschen versus the lesser races. I mean, he's, he's done this before. I mean, like, the descriptions of Japan here kind of oh, yellow peril. It was awful. Well, yeah. But, yeah, but on the other hand, you know, he had been, uh, and I believe it was just uh, around this time, he had been to Asia. Um, and seen the invasion of of Korea via Japan, he was he was all in there uh, doing reportage for the San Francisco newspapers, mm-hmm. and uh, he he his contempt for the Japanese uh, military is uh, it, it's the same kind of contempt you would have for the Japanese military in the invasion of China, not that much later because yeah. they're doing exactly the same stuff. It's not like the culture of the military changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I mean, so you you can you, you can if you want you can separate out the political criticism from the racism. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they combine neatly, and it's really quick here because the oh man, fleet, so, doesn't he call it the Mikado's fleet? I think. Yep. Yeah. Um, it's really the fast. emperor, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, you know, it goes away. But that's that's always this problem with London. I mean, he's got this weird. I mean, he's strong. Socialist, communist, you know, politics, but then he's got you know hyperbolic racism. I mean, well, yeah, but even so, I mean, you, you you look at what what is the result, right? Uh, they they just have to treat their people better, right? It's not like you know, and he put the entire island under the sea. Right? Oh, sure, no, in, in this story, yeah. No, I'm just thinking London in general, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it like the red one, or what's the story where they exterminate China? <clears throat> Uh, there's term warfare. There's a war. Yeah, there's a war with the United States. Yeah, uh, I can't remember the name of that one, but there is. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely there. I mean, it's what he's thinking about. But I, I just, I mean, the boldness of here. I'm going to solve everything, and it, it basically he's he's talking. Com, it's communist revolution before the communist revolution of. Uh, of Russia, right? It's yeah. It's it's exactly what they are doing, right? You know, right. you don't own this anymore. Mm-hmm. And well, you, go ahead. Uh, you know, I think people um, want to know how do we get there from here? Is right? You know, we've got mm. this ideal. Uh, if he was writing it today, um, it wouldn't be about you know communist revolution exactly. I think right. it would be a, you know probably about climate change. Is it? You can't put that stuff in the atmosphere anymore. 
possibly. And it also it also makes me think of um, just recently it was the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Johnson here in the states declaring a war on poverty, mm. and look how well that worked out. So I mean, it, what we're doing obviously I'll, isn't working in a lot of ways. So. Well, it's it's better. I mean, it's better. Arguably, you know, it's been expensive, but we've um, we've made progress. It's less bad. True. Uh, Some I, amazing I, things that are true. I, I think that uh, you guys don't seem to do it. I, well, I don't know about Brian, but on my side, I don't know about you either. But I know Seth works too hard. <laughs> um, do. Jesse doesn't work that hard. Jesse works maybe three hours, four hours, sometimes, I mean, long day, six hours. I've had eight hours days, but generally like two hours, three hours, that's a good day for me. I like to work. I don't like to work to eight hours. I mean, and that's what, what I like about this story is there's so much you can pick out. One of the things that happens almost immediately is if you've got, uh, you know, increased um, productivity, you can reduce the number of hours people are forced to, you know, labor for to just right. put food on the on the plate and to house themselves. Well, that was supposed to have happened by now. I mean, you, you read theorists in the fifties and sixties, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. It's actually a problem. They're worried about that productivity is increasing with automation. And what are we going to do when we have too much leisure time? I mean, that's a serious it's, concern. It's, yeah, yeah. And and, um, and we decided that the solution, at least in the U.S., the solution is we'll just have people work more um, and make them less secure. That's a great solution. Well, um, I I, th- I thought the solution was you start a podcast and then you invite absolutely. people to, to talk about stories. But I, I think That's a much better solution. I, I I think that it is the way we get there from here is through ideas. Uh, you know, like 1984 casts a large shadow even over people who don't, haven't read it um, because it, it's, it's, uh, it's so powerful an idea. Communist Manifesto is not, it might not be a work of fiction, but it casts a huge shadow over the minds of people and, and makes them perform real-world actions. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I, I sure. see people reading Twilight, I, I don't know what kind of shadow uh, that's cast over yeah. people. And, uh, I'm, not, shadow. I'm not sure what, what we should do about that. <laughs> well, if you, want, if you want a hue closer to the story, mm-hmm. Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward. That's, oh, right. Yeah, that's a that's bestseller. And it's casting over this story, yeah. And that formed, a, it was a huge hit. And they were looking backward clubs who were crazy about this. And mm-hmm. in the 1930s, when the global economy went flat, then um, that was Bellamy's, his ideas were talked about as a possible solution, as a fix. I, I, I do want to say, I, I really, you know, there are parts of this utopia that I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can do a little Marxian reference here. There's the bit about the amount of hours per day dropping to mm-hmm. yes. An hour. So this is um, this is from a young piece by Marx. Uh, this is from the German Ideology, and he says um, in communist society where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can be accomplished in any branch he wishes. It makes it possible for me to do one thing today, another tomorrow. To hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon. Rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner. <laughs> it's this wonderful. Like, you know, Marx hated the idea of utopias. He was constantly anti-utopia his whole life. But this always seems really sweet to me. This is a kind of beloved Marx passage. Just that it's it's from the German ideology. It's the name of the uh, essay. Okay. Uh, and this just reminds me of of uh, these guys when they're not busy laughing themselves to tears. You know, <laughs> they're 
they're able to do whatever they want and uh, and move. But we don't hear anything about that, about what it is. I mean, I know there's no, there wasn't any time in the story, but what were they doing? Like this thing about what do you do with all your free time? They have all this free time, and we're at 300 years in the future, so they're doing okay with it. But we don't know what, like. What what's going on? Yeah, there are vague allusions to you know ideas and spirituality. They're, is something they're laughs, laughter. Spirits. They're just laughing. <laughs> well, I I think it's it's so you know he's so interested in getting to where he is. You know he's trying to get us to utopia. He's sort of forgotten. You know what the goal of utopia? What what specifically will it look like? Just laughter. <laughs> it's so. I mean, it's so not what you see when you know you look at any kind of utopian writing. It never has. You know, the goal is laughter. I just thought it was. I was yeah. like, this computer, this computer Colossus. It's so different from the movie Colossus, <laughs> but it's not a. It's it's. I mean, we just read we just read Herland. That's yeah. Right. It's a very positive utopia in certain ways, but it doesn't have a lot of happiness. I mean, it doesn't have the kind of laughter. No, there's no, no, there's, uh, the laughter is very limited. It's like child, child, laughing at your child, enjoying a flower or something. It's not. That's right. It's a little bit ambiguous, though, because, you know, it's like the whole image is smithing the laughter, laughter on the ringing anvil of life. So it, mm-hmm. it's, it's not entirely without some pain and suffering, it seems like. Well, uh, I mean, this is, yeah, it's a response to uh, the kind of nihilism, I guess, that you're, uh, I I was arguing uh, earlier this, I guess, late last year about how uh, Guy de Maupassant and, uh, and uh, Friedrich Nietzsche were very similar kind of guys, which is kind of funny because they're not, you know, similar kind of writers, but they're both... They're both dealing with the kind of upset that people have after World War One because they both experienced uh, the you know the early version of that in mm-hmm. the Franco-Prussian War. Um, you know, when you read about Jack London's life, he had it bad. He he saw you know the exploitation of people. He saw how terrible capitalism. Was. I mean, at its worst, mm-hmm. we've got it bad now, and for some people, right? But you know, they aren't starving, right? Nobody's starving in the States. It's not that bad. Not many. Um, although it is, it is fun to read London, you know, when he's in this remote historical past, a science fiction writer talking about a world where the 1% dominate the world, the corporations are super powerful. You know, it's good to read science fiction like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thought it was really, really positive. I mean, optimistic compared to you know, from where he where he's sitting, and then compared to like um, the Scarlet Plague, for instance. Oh, oh yeah. Where, where he ends that, he ends that after you know, after the huge you know ninety nine percent of everybody's dead, and then the grandfather says, um, "Well, nobody can read these books anymore, but it doesn't matter because they're going to write them again anyway, and they're going to build these weapons again anyway, and all of this is going to happen again anyway." Oh, great. Whereas nobody this, learned anything, yeah. Nobody learned anything. Whereas in this one, we're 300 years hence, and we're still in utopia. Yeah. Like, it didn't revert back. Right. So the, this is the opposite of Canical for Leibowitz. You know, we don't have that cycle mm-hmm, going again. Right. again. Mm-hmm. Instead, humans have actually jumped forward. Yeah, yeah. It's a progressive piece, literally. 
It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we progressed. Hooray. I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm, that's why I wanted to talk about this story. Is this, it's so not, a, it, just like the Iron Heel, really. I mean, it's not really about characters. Mm-mm. There's, there's, a, we find out at the end he doesn't, he's afraid of cats. Yeah, that's <laughs> great. Okay, that's a character. I love that detail. <laughs> he likes crazy about pistachios. Salted yeah. pecans. Salted pistachios. pecans, right. Salted pecans, and he's afraid of cats. He's 118 pounds, right? Okay. Um, but, yeah, it's not really about that. It's it, it, the characters are there entirely in service of the ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there's a kind of Wizard of Oz feeling at the end. You know, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Um, so Jesse, you were mentioning Paul Grave and its kind of religious implications, and, and I think there's something there. And there's also a scene, um, uh, just a throwaway mention of a uh, reference to the the emperor kind of submitting to the pope. Um, which I think is a reference to the investiture uh, controversy in the Middle Ages over who gets to, if a bishop dies, who gets to um, appoint a new bishop in that area. Is it the secular emperor or is it the pope? And it's a right. it's a really long, drawn-out um, thing, but I, I, kind of, I believe it ends with the pope excommunicating basically the emperor and all the subjects and like, oh, we can't get our sacraments anymore, you win. Mm-hmm. So the emperor um, goes to Canosa. This is usually called the Snow is a Kenosa story, which is the papal retreat. And the Pope makes him wait outside for days. Yeah. And uh, the Emperor is out there, and you get these images of him shivering. And he finally, the, the Pope lets him in to, so the Emperor, the Emperor can apologize and beg for mm-hmm. forgiveness. And apparently it kills him, that he, he gets a terrible pneumonia from this and, and he dies. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, when there's this, you have a thousand years where the, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope struggle for preeminence and this is one of those where the pope is clearly on top yeah yeah and so we have a new pope um we have goliath who will then <laughs> you know, rule everything yeah um and in fact it's interesting that if i can change the animal metaphor if in christianity the uh, you have the shepherd and flock metaphor here maybe because it's jack london we have a dog metaphor um hmm. Because who's the uh, only uh, guy that we know that obeys Goliath by name? Basset. <laughs> oh, right. I immediately um, thought of, and, you know, he's a yeah. Basset hound. And he, he, mm. he goes to his master, and he, he obeys. He's trained. Those, those, those guys on the ship, they were described as stolid bovine sorts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That wasn't the best thing you could do. No. <laughs> But you know the humans, we're gonna we're gonna follow. I mean, Bassett is a captain, so mm-hmm. and he's reduced to a to a lackey. It's it's like a, what's the process called in dog training? It's the uh, like the alpha role, mm-hmm. yeah, and and that's what Goliath has just done to the human race. It's for our own good. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> it was like this. Um, that's the, why the cat. The, he's afraid of cats. Is so oh, there you go. Yes, <laughs> there's the connection. The ancient war. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the good of the good of the um, the good of the many outweigh the good of the few. <laughs> yeah, that's mm-hmm. Absolutely, nice. he says. What you know? Do you think I'm going to not destroy you? I'm thinking the billions to come. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean that that is the scary. Uh, you know. Yeah. Sure. We've got concentration camps, but it's for the good in the long run. Well, there's this. There's this. You know, it, it, France and Germany going to have a little war. Hmm. This is from 1907? That's right. Mm. Well, that's pretty good. Because they do go on to have a little war yeah. or two. 
and I, I I thought it was interesting. You know, the that's the story we hear about. You know how the the soldiers actually related to each other on the battlefield. You know, there's, there's yeah. movies, right? Because what do they do? They go, they cross each other's borders and embrace, right? Mm-hmm. If they don't have that crappy leadership, they just <laughs> the Chris, Christmas was 1914 or 1915. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He nailed it. I mean, that's oh, yeah. it's rare for science fiction to be that prophetic. That's pretty prophetic. Yeah, yeah. he really nailed that. I, I I still I, I I'm so shocked by you know the the power of the opening of this. Like I, I said, oh my god, this is a cool story right at the beginning. I, I thought I gotta do a show on this. And I ha- I deliberately didn't read all the way through because I I was kinda worried about being disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was disappointed with the um with you know the revelation. Because uh, I wanted it to be a computer, I thought that was cool. <laughs> uh, because when you watch, you know, Colossus the Forbin Project, um, that computer, he, he's going to remake the world just right. the way he wants it, and it uses exactly the same power. Right? It's do it or I will destroy you. It's not, you know, any subtlety of, you know, like, you know, in. In American political reality, there are many ways of getting stuff done. You can use, you know, brute force, and almost nobody does. You can use the veil of law to cover the brute force, which happens more often. But you can also just use pressure tactics, right? But when you strip all that away, the ultimate reality of, of governments is that they have guns. More guns than you have, and you have to do what they say. Or you die, and he just he just says that I will destroy you, and he doesn't say I know all the answers because he says come come to this island I'm going to show you all this stuff and then you're going to help me yeah mm-hmm. and I don't know about the ten he always asks for ten he takes ten captains of industry and then he gets ten politicians and then ten scientists well, Is actually that how it goes? he asks for nine and you know it's interesting um, this just sort of occurred to me but. Um, with a connection with Asgard, which is you know Old Norse um, city of the gods, and nine mm-hmm. is a, a very um, symbolic number in Old Norse mythology. I'm probably reading too much into this, but you know Odin hangs on the tree for nine nights. It's 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 all over the place in in Norse mythology. I thought it was ten. It, it was nine plus facet uh-huh. in the first one, and so the, and then no, but he does ask for ten scientists. Oh, okay, yeah, you're right. Okay, ten politicians ten. Are dead. Never mind them. Yeah, yeah. never yeah. mind. But tens are pretty. I mean, did you? Yeah. There were so biblical references. Yeah. All over, and tens a pretty biblical number. Oh no, it's not. Well, yeah, there's plagues, commandments. Yeah, yeah. 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 Does he does he send for forty guys total? I don't we'll know. We'll salvage this line of thought yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm this not is sure. the difference between a podcast and a you know uh, a paper you would submit. Absolutely. <laughs> All your bad ideas, you throw oh, them out. Did you, did you notice that, that it sort of followed a very similar um, structure to the book of Job? No. Like oh. he, in that um, nice. he would send his, he would send the, whatever plague or, or and one guy survives and he comes back like I alone have, have come back to tell uh. the rest of the world. So Bassett oh. survives and then. Um, one ship out of the ten that went to I, survive, and the German guy survived. 
and they keep coming back and, and telling. And so like this Goliath knows so much better than everybody else. Like, okay, well, yeah, I'm doing all these things to you. you don't question me. I know better. It, it, it's, it was almost like God, you know. Yeah, like, well, he was totally like God. Yeah. There was, it was his will, and, and, I, and you will do as I command. There was all kinds of that the stuff. Only, the only thing that made me think it wasn't like, you know, I, I didn't say it's definitely God, was that the, the letters were way too long. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, when God speaks, he's go unto them and blank, right? And that's about, uh, that's about it. Well, unless you These are much more... And and the thing about laughter that is that is a it is so, such a response to to nihilism you know it's like the pointlessness of existence. Uh, what can you do? Well, you can laugh or cry. So yeah. Let's laugh. You don't get a lot of laughter in in the Old Testament. No, no, really don't. No. In, in Tanakh, I mean, you, you really, <laughs> no, really don't. Uh, pretty, no. pretty bleak. No, it's. I wanted to do a, a word cloud of this. I have a chance oh, to. Be cool. Just oh. thinking that you know. Word, you know, what would uh, pop up at the top and obviously be laughter. Goliath has spoken. Yeah. I love it. Uh, you know what this else reminds me of is that um, brilliant, brilliant political novel um, by Eng, uh, Arslan. Mm, I've heard of it. Um, where a um, Central, Ameri- Central, uh, sorry, Central Asian military ruler takes over the world. It happens in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And um, Makes his headquarters in Kansas, um, and rules. And this small town becomes his his HQ. Mm. And the main character is, I think, a school teacher, um, and follows what happens to the town. And Arslan, one of the things he does is decide, all right, I'm taking over. I'm going to remake the world, make it into a better place. And um, he does it. I mean, he has control of the satellite network. He has control of the world's militaries. And uh, it's a terrible. It's a scary novel. Sounds um, fascinating. Oh, it's a, it's a great, great book, and Eng has never written anything of this at that level since. Mm. Um, and but this book is just uh, um, it's terrible. But, but one of the things that keeps coming up is he exerts his will to make the world a better place, and there are costs. I don't want to spoil it for you because um, the costs are drastic. Um, but you get that sense of you know this is not going to get better unless I do it. You know this is a uh, now he's he's portrayed as someone who doesn't mind killing. Uh, neither does Goliath, although Goliath's death toll was relatively light, mm-hmm. um, which does help build up the reveal. Anyway, that's uh, if you get a chance, Arslan is uh, not a long. Oh, that sounds like a good one. A couple hundred pages. It, I, it doesn't sound uh, like I, I have a feeling it's not normally thought of as science fiction. Is that correct? Um, Somehow I, it's I, I think it, my radar in that respect. I think it's usually called science fiction. Oh, uh, really? Okay. My copy has a blurb from Samuel Delaney. Oh, which is that, that's science rare. fiction. Yeah. yeah, I read it with Eric Rebkin. Oh, uh, cool. group. But I had a couple of questions for you guys um, about the text and the, some of the textual references. Um, some of these I didn't get and I couldn't figure out. So one is, I'm looking at the PDF that uh, mm-hmm. Jesse, Jesse put up. And by the way, thank you for doing so. Oh, uh, my pleasure. I really, I really like this uh, this is from the book. From the Bookman, yeah. I think that's the second publication. The first was in the Red Magazine, which I've never seen a copy of. Very uh, hard to find that mag. Yeah, it looks like a So the bottom of page three, and I'll just read you the part because it's not that big a deal, really. Uh, Still, the world would not believe. The ten politicians were at Washington, so they did not have the opportunity of being convinced that Bassett had had, and not one of them took the trouble to journey out to San Francisco to make the opportunity. 
As for Goliath, he was held by the newspapers as another Tom Lawson with mm-hmm. a panacea. And I can't find out who this Tom Lawson was. Do you guys have an idea? No, but no. I, th- I thought that illusion would be something easily found. Huh. Um, there's a lot of little references like that. And the funny thing is, is it sort of belies the later, you know, written from the 23rd century. Um, that's oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I, it, I would guess that they're very local San Francisco references because, I mean, uh, no matter what he does, right, no matter where he sets his stories, it all comes back to San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> You know that part when they were in San Francisco, when he told San Francisco to go out and play. Right. Um, you, rem- you remember that Twilight Zone episode called, um, I don't remember what it was called, something like uh, It's a Good Life, mm. where this, yes. this little boy said yes. everything he, 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 he right. like, right? And so everybody, no matter what he does, they say, oh, that's a really good thing that you It was did. good that you took away the kitten's mouth. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> It was good that you just killed all those ships. Really good. And, and he can also read, that boy can also read your thoughts, right? Right. He's not just, he's not just uh, powerful like God. He's also, you know, he knows everything like God or Santa Claus. Right. Yeah. Well, he can, he, can, he can tell in part because he can look at you and scare the bejesus out of you. And, you know, you'll, you'll confess by your attitude. Uh, that's the opening part of the. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I may be confusing the story um, with the uh, with the uh, TV episode. Mm-hmm. The story is called "It's a Good Life." Mm-hmm. It's a good life, yeah. and it's really bleak. I mean, in that story, he he makes the world go away, right? Yeah, it's just the town yeah. left. Yeah. Yuck. By the way, that's public domain, and it's uh, on the PDF page there. Oh, that story. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, nice. Nice, nice, nice. So it uh, looks like we've found a reference to Dr. Lawson's Panacea. I did, but I don't know what it means, and I can't talk intelligently about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's the date on this piece, does it say? It's hard to mm. see. It looks a- around the pr- approximately the same era from the print. Yeah, just from the typography the, and everything. I hate Google Books doing this. This thing, whatever it is, is public domain. Mm-hmm. And what do they do? They hide it. Why? Because it's they they went through so fast. Oh, but if you look, there's a there's a um, tag cloud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Roosevelt says, "Standard Oil, <laughs> <laughs> Albania, <laughs> bed bugs." <laughs> That's a good short story idea. Go. <laughs> <laughs> you just take a bunch of uh, uh, tag cloud words from a specific era, and you've got a. Uh, I, I think I think that's how they do all the uh, steampunk books. <laughs> Just have, have a tag cloud of airship zeppelin goggles. Yeah, goggles definitely uh, brass. brass brass. Yeah. Well, this is how you do uh, uh, you know romantic uh, paranormal romance, right? Mm-hmm. It's a much smaller tag cloud. Tattoo shirt less. <laughs> I don't know. Vampire. Something like that. Well, this is a great catch. Thank you for catching this. I just I, I googled uh, Thomas Lawson Panacea and it came up mm-hmm. second or third after some modern guy named Thomas Lawson who's on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah, I found that. Found I didn't that. think it was. I didn't think the Panacea worked that well. So Nicholas Montenegro, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, you, 
I think one of the things there it said was uh, something about the stock market. I I was I was hearing something about uh, what somebody's analysis of what was wrong with uh, the stock market, mm-hmm. and um, I thought that was a fascinating. I heard it on a podcast the other day, and it was basically saying there's just too much money in it. It's all it's like every kind of person's money goes in there whether they want to or not right your government encourages you to buy um uh, bonds bonds and not bonds but like uh mutual funds and stuff like that right so that you know you if you're in a union your your um retirement funds go you know out of your hands into the hands of investors and investors invest that and it just it's like over um and it in my limited experience with the stock market, which is basically watching private companies become public companies, mm-hmm. what happens is um, a perfectly good functioning private company um, is sold, uh, has an IPO, um, it, you know, has a huge in- burst of money go into it, and then collapses and <laughs> disappears. And and I'm only talking about the audiobook industry. <laughs> what happens is the company, you know, private, privately held family company says, "Hey, I know what we should do. We should we should get into the stock market. We'll sell it." And they they do it, and the company suddenly has a huge amount of money pouring. They overinvest in in product, and then um, in six months, nine months, they're gone. So the stock market is just a, a approved, sanctioned uh, version of a Ponzi scheme. Well, I, that's that's one criticism. I mean, it, that's... it was it was basically it was like the 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 shield of of uh, of having corporations not be responsible to uh, individuals. You know, like you can't sue the owners of the corporation because they're all limited liability, right? Oh, right. That's what LLC is. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And all companies are LLCs now, right? All the, you know, so you can sue the company out of existence, but you can't sue the the employees, uh, the right. guys who are running the company out of existence because they're that's, not legally liable. What that's happens, one reason my company is an LLC. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah. But that's see, made, you know, like if you go back to the days of... Um, the first companies, bringing it all back to the beginning, right? Um, those were monopolies, right? Hudson's Bay Company was a monopoly. Yeah, it was sure. a government I, 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 monopoly. And so right. the thing is, is they were the government, essentially. It was the rich men and their sons who said, let's go off and make this land ours and we will have the exclusive rights. Of course, the profits are going to be huge. And you can't sue them, but now there's so many companies that the the it's it basically the argument that was being made was there's way too much money in it. Now in Goliath, he just completely abolishes the stock market, right? And he puts all those guys to work. I think that's, that's, that's something in between those two positions that um, that is probably the better way of going for it. But my God, in, in this year, what a fun thing to imagine! You know, I, know. <laughs> I mean, it's like the Occupy dream, right? The, um, but I would, I would go back to, um, you know, the thing about too much money. The um, 
National American National Public Radio program did a uh, story on the financial crash of 2008, and they ended up calling it the giant pool of money. Mm-hmm. And their argument was that there was, in the lead-up to the bubble, so from 2000 to 2008 roughly, there was just this oversupply of speculative money entering the system, and it needed to go somewhere. And that's one of the reasons why so many bizarre, exotic financial instruments got created, was to mm-hmm. satisfy the need. I mean, ultimately, I disagree with this. I think this is um, – that theory, among other things, obviates the need for taking anybody to task, um, for getting anybody in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but that's very appealing uh, in a lot of ways. Well, what's, what's – you know, let me ask you, the flip side of the utopia here, world, what, what scared you about this dystopia besides, you know, Mr. Childlike Face <laughs> being able to blast anybody out of existence? What else – was grim or nightmarish about this utopia? He, um, he didn't, he was so stringent, like even, even after a year when, when everybody was sort of in line with him, um, when, when everybody, anybody did disagree, he still killed them. Ah, now those are leaders, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those are leaders and thinkers and, or political leaders. Yeah. He, and he said, if, if they disagree, I, I kill them. Yeah, I think he's, you know, London's a bit naive <laughs> when it comes to, uh, you know, we just get these stupid jerks uh, running things out of the way um, and everything will be all right. Because it, at one point, doesn't he say, like, the the guys who, who I can't remember the name of the the guys who, who are doing it, but there's a, a, group, of pe- a group of men who, who they can't help but do their job properly because they've been well trained. I think it was like civil engineers or something. Yeah, All right. executives. Yeah, executives. Yeah, exactly. yeah, it's like they, you, they can know, you know, it was like they can't be corrupt or anything like that. Well, I think, you know, in, in my experience of what makes things go bad is basically too much time goes long goes on in some organ whatever organization it is too much the organization is around too long and uh the bad patterns um don't get eliminated mm. and so yeah if we wipe the slate clean which is what he's doing here right um and put in some you know new people who are uh you know they just want to get stuff done and they have some good ideas Things will be good for a while, but then you know they're going to want to have their children, inherit their jobs. <laughs> that was what I found not surprising too. He he totally set the reset button, yep. and and everything was fresh, but he, nothing bad came back. Like where 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 is everybody? Where are all the? Money? Yeah, when he's putting all those people out of work, he he takes all the women out of the factories, right? Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, what, he, he puts those people out of work. Who's, who's going to be manufacturing the food? They're back it's in the automatic. home. It was all automatic. Everything became automatic. Energon. Household chores, food manufacture, it was all automatic. Yeah. I think there's a Philip K. Dick story where um, the entire population is dependent on these machines. Uh, there's, there might be a few stories like this. where The entire population is dependent on machines that like, came from outer space uh, that can reproduce everything. Um, including food, but the I, in one of the versions of this story, um, there's one called Autofac, which is well, they are yeah. machines, um, and then there's another one where they're aliens, and the aliens are like benevolent 
mm. aliens. And they come and they basically, they're, I don't know, like Shoggoths or something, right? And what you do is you bring them something and they, I don't know, absorb it. And then they can manufacture that thing. So you bring them a sandwich, right? <laughs> and they kick it in and they go bloop, 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 bloop. And a whole bunch of <laughs> sandwiches come out the other end. And um, <laughs> this is just getting great. Great, great. <laughs> Um, so the problem worse. with it, or in in the in the other, they drive a you know a, a Buick in, and it come you know Buick comes out the Buick can come out the other end. The problem is, is the aliens are dying. They've been uh, oh, sure. God, <laughs> that hurt. They've been yeah. too long. They they're just tired. Passed a Buick. <laughs> and people are in despair because they don't know how to make anything anymore. Ah. Uh. It's like the Jack Williamson story uh, with folded hands, where oh. the uh, robots take over and we're happy, but then the robots are they have an Asimov law set up, and you know they they don't want people to be hurt, mm-hmm. so they start adjusting our environment to make sure things can't hurt us. So uh. they they blunt our knives, they they turn uh, ninety degree angles into soft corners, and mm-hmm. you know they, they make sure that our cars can't go very fast, and mm-hmm. you know make life more and more safe and more and more dull. It, it, I think you turn on the plastic life. bag. Do not put on baby's head, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. Do not put in your own head. Yeah. Uh, the limited liability company will uh, get in trouble <laughs> with you. I think Neil. I think Stevenson's- there's a Star Trek episode too. Mm. Where, where where they they have the, these these people have a ship and they can't fix it because nobody knows how to fix anything anymore. Oh wow! Huh? Original show. So Jordy has to go over and fix it for them. Oh, <laughs> oh Jordy! Generation. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that doesn't sound like a, a classic episode. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> But yeah, for some people, just... that is the classic episode. Yeah, Next Generation. <laughs> I grew up on that kind of. Oh God! All right, make me feel old. But, um, yeah, me too. Well, I, I think I, I like this story for all kinds of reasons. I, I liked its. Um, I mean, it's got its typical Jack London manic energy, mm-hmm. you know, racing uh, top speed. Um, it has that love of energy and life. Mm. Even calling the thing Energon, you know, it's it's, yeah. it's so brisk. Radium and all the other uh, elements that have not been discovered. Yeah. Right. Well, they were just discovered the 1920s. Yeah. Well, no. Yeah, he says the first decade of the tw- of the 20th century. Well, I think radium's there, but all the other ones, like, wow, they're all going to be discovered in like last two years. And <laughs> gotta hurry up. Yeah. Well, I, you know, there's um, there's a story that uh, Jack London scholars love that Lenin, when he was dying, asked his wife Kripskaya to read to him Jack London stories. Oh my gosh. Oh, London's is yeah. it? He has a huge international reputation. He's, he's widely read. He's widely translated. And uh, that, you know, that just sense of um, vigor is, is there. Oh, yeah. Also, I just like the, the sheer uh, daring of this imagination. You know, I'll give someone infinite power, and, or not infinite power, but a pretty awesome amount of power. What could they do? And, and this is different from what we've seen from the period science fiction. You think of, uh, what's the Jules Verne story about the super inventors who try to take over yeah, the world? Yeah, Rober the Conqueror. Is that- yeah, yeah, Master of the World. Yeah, I was thinking of that one, yeah. That's yeah, they, and so we've got that. You know, we're used to that and happening. There's Caverite, too, which is, is that him? No, that's Professor Caver. That's a different guy, yeah. Yeah, first man on the moon. Um, no, this is, you know, well, this is more like the Martians. You know, he's got his own heat ray, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I really, it, it's nice, straightforward exercise. I mean, you, I can see this as an essay because, well, 
we're told at the end it is an essay, but <laughs> mm-hmm. but it's it's a it's a speculation. You know, what would happen if you could do this? Yeah. And so we don't get a lot of characters. We we do get some action. There's a dramatic attempt to get rid of the yacht. And then yeah, the, uh, you know, mm-hmm. that was really that was. You could tell he had fun writing that. He's like, and the the sight of the landmines going off under the Golden Gate Bridge was a sight to behold, or something like that. He yeah. was getting into it. It, it says that you know that the the reason all those things at the end though it explains that all those things happened because of his agents they had permeated society. Mm-hmm. So uh, now I was thinking that's okay. How do you get the agents to know where the you know everybody all the politicians are? You, this is a too big a conspiracy. I, I like the Palantir idea idea better. Do you know there's actually a company called Palantir? I heard that, and it's it's scary. I mean, yeah, it, the Palantir company. is evil. That's, yeah, these guys it, do they do like intelligence analysts for the military. That's yeah. their job. It, it, <laughs> Embracing like, the dark side. Wait a minute, as a Lord of the Rings fan, I have to I have to defend the Palantir. It's it's you know it's it's like most technology. It's it's not inherently good or evil. Uh, I think I think that the problem with the Palantir is that not everybody not every hobbit has one. Right? See, I'm totally cool with everybody being monitored all the time. I'm cool with that. I'm not cool with us not being able to see what's going on on other people's screens. Right? Oh, if the hobbits had it, it'd be cool. It'd be like, oh, Bungo didn't return my letter from last week. No, that'd be great. <laughs> Where's that hey, cheese? He's not going to get invited to the party next week. Yeah. That's right. Got my sausage. Where? Oh my god! That's what you want. You want a hob- You want a hobbit to be Goliath? Yes. Right? I'm going to take over the world, and everyone will have five meals a day. A long smoke. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Hundred and eighteen pounds for that long. <laughs> oh, the problem is the hobbits can't carry a palantir. Could you smoke? The the I think the 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 monopoly aspect, right? So when when he gives up his power. He is, you know, I guess the society is transformed enough that um, he doesn't need uh, to be in control anymore. That's where we know he's a good guy, right? Even though he's got all these slaves and he's killed lots of people and he's blown up ships and he's fundamentally destroyed society as it was, he's a good guy because in the end, he his motives were pure and yes, the harm he did was outweighed by the benefits that he he gave but <clears throat> i think that that's usually how the people who are running things think they're they're acting anyways you know i'm doing it for the greater good yeah it's bad that i have all these people in prison or whatever What's that movie? uh the the british comedy police comedy um by the guys who did Shaun of the dead hot, oh, fuzz. hot, fuzz. hot fuzz i yeah. love that movie yeah, that's the chant right for the greater good right for the greater good that's how they do things. Well, that's what the MSA says. Right? Well, he mm-hmm. does say that, that uh, even the old people who, who would be the grumblers stop grumbling. Yeah. Like, I thought that was total bullshit. <laughs> Cause, <laughs> just because you give people money doesn't mean they stop grumbling. Grumblers <laughs> grumble. I mean, maybe they have something to grumble about. Maybe they just grumble because it's their nature. Yeah, that's true. And that, you know, that brings me back to Brian's question about what bothered you or what seemed grim about this. And it, it goes back to my, to that image of, of smithing laughter on the ring anvil. I mean, have you ever met those people who are like, um, very bubbly and happy. And if you're not happy around them, it all of a sudden be- becomes bad. Like you are expected 
to maintain a positive mood at all times, you know, around this person. And so, you know, taking that to a cultural and political level, it seems like that's what you've got here. Like, you know, if you just have a bad day or, you know, you want to complain about something, that's no longer okay for any extended period of time. The yeah, work of life will become play, and the well, young and old will be children of joy. <laughs> there was also the part about um, the criminally insane, how um, they were rehabilitated, but if they couldn't be rehabilitated, um, Seg- they were what? Segregated. Segregated and not allowed to marry. Mm-hmm. So, like, you had to stay happy. Yeah. It is the going back to the Jerome Bixby story. It's. Um, it's it's a good life. It's a good life. Whatever whatever Goliath says, and what that is the the line, right? And anybody question it? Goliath has spoken. Yeah, he's gonna say that. Stalin has spoken. <laughs> there's a kind of a there's a kind of Stockholm syndrome at work. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, the, the thing is, is if you don't, what's going to happen, right? Right, just out of the air, you'll just be zotzed. Yeah. Well, does somebody else get the, the the zapping machine after he retires? Well, that's what. But see, I think it goes to all these universities or something, right? The colleges of inventions—they can invent yeah. new stuff. Yeah. Um. So I was thinking of this as a metaphor for nukes in a certain way. I mean, when when you've got nukes, you can do what. Colossus does in Colossus the Forbin Project. Which is oh, nukes. I'm sorry. I thought you said mooks. No, no, not mooks. Mooks are different kinds of things. Of course, you would hear mooks. You would hear mooks. Yep. Um, but yeah, n- nukes, nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah. If you've got nuclear weapons, you can compel people to do stuff, right? So the United States doesn't like Iran. Doing something, you can't do that. You can't have nukes. That's bad. We'll nuke you. Well, um, except, except wait a second. That's kind of controversial because it, it's. I mean, one of the things that happens in 1945 is no one's used nuke, and it, it's possible that no one believes anyone will do it. I mean, you know that the threats are just so terrifying. Yeah, that that's right. They're over the line. I mean, so you know, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, and the decisive thing is conventional forces, a military blockade of Cuba. Um, you know, the U.S. didn't nuke Vietnam. Uh, President Eisenhower in 1952 apparently floated the idea of using atomic weapons in North Korea mm-hmm. to help bring about peace treaties, but it didn't happen. Um, well, one of the generals was like, give me them! Oh, yeah. What's his name? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, uh, oh, that was MacArthur. MacArthur, right. Uh, and he got in crap because he was sort of uh, saying it too publicly. There's a biography of him called American Caesar, which oh, is a yeah. great title because yeah. he was just I – mean, he was off on his own. But, you know, this, this – um, uh, again and again, I, I keep thinking of other stories as I read this um, and, uh, and I think about what could be done with it and how, it, how terrifying it is. What's that uh, – there's a Doctor Who episode. It's the Happiness Patrol. Mm, yeah. Where <laughs> there's a mandated happiness. That's and they right. have like, Police it's a dystopia um, in the shape of a utopia, right? Right. right. It's supposedly a Thatcher parody, I think. It's one of the last episodes before they got canceled. So it is from the 80s, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a Sylvester McCoy episode. Oh, you're hardcore, man. You got it. I know. <laughs> I, I, I think I might have had the writer on for that. Ben Aronovich, I think, might have been the guy who wrote oh, that. Sweet. Yeah. That's great. Not 100% sure he wrote that one, but... Um, it's very possible. Um, and then, 
it, there's also this. Uh, oh, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say for the people who haven't uh, seen it, it's it's basically um, there's gangs that run around making sure that you're happy, and <laughs> if you're not, you're dead. Yeah, I'm glad you're happy. I'm happy you're glad, and all mm-hmm. that. And the the one person Zot's power reminds me of this totally bizarre. Japanese manga that kind of turned into a pretty good movie called The Death Note. Oh, I've Have heard you guys seen Death this? Note. I've heard of it. My students talk no. about it. No, I haven't I, heard of it. I recommend it. I'm I'm not a manga fanatic. I mean, I'm I'm very very picky. And this is weird. This feels like something from the 1890s. The the gimmick is uh, uh, a demon. You just have to accept this. A demon has a notebook that he uses, and he drops it on Earth just to see what happens. And what happens is. If you pick up this notebook and write somebody's name on it, oh no, they drop dead in 24 hours. And so what happens is a kid. Is there are there instructions? How do you know? How do you know how to use this notebook? Well, you see, you automatically start thinking about this, right? The idea is so good. You just keep, you know, I'll, I'll leave you to figure out all the mechanism of it. Um, it's it, it doesn't look scary too. It's just like a black notebook, you know, black covers. Um, there is instruction, a little instruction in the beginning. Um, but who picks it up is an overachieving high school student who is a straight A student, going to go on to, like, you know, slated for a great university career and all that, but he's bored with life. So he picks this up and he decides that he's going to use it to make the world a better place. <sighs> Things get out of control. Um, a, lot, a large part of it, one of the reasons for popularity, is it becomes a duel between him and this mysterious Sherlock Holmes detective figure who is only known by the initial L. <laughs> and the, t- the two of them play this classic really? elaborate yeah, cat and mouse game to try and figure out who is, you know, who is really the person who is knocking off people all over the world. It's, um, yeah, it's extraordinary. I, wow. I, Are you I reading the, 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 mag- the comics or the, watching the cartoon or what? I read the, I read the manga and then I watched the anime. And the uh, they're both really good. I mean, the anime is is shorter. It's like you know uh, three hours or something. Mm-hmm. And the it's, it's huge. I mean, it's, it's Japanese serial fiction, so mm-hmm. it goes on for yeah. It's, it's it it really. I just gave you all the science fiction, horror, fantasy aspects. It really reads more like police procedural mm-hmm. because it's all this nitpicking detail. Okay, who called whom at what point? Whose signature? What can we tell? Let's set a trap. Um, it's uh. Oh, the, the the high school kid. His dad is a chief of police for Tokyo. Oh wow! Which makes which makes things awkward around the dinner table. And mm-hmm. No, I I anyway. I, so first, I, I recommend it if you haven't. I, I I think it's it's strongly worth the it's worth the time. That sounds good. Um, but, all, but it's also there's nothing like it in Japan that I can find. It just really stands out. But the others again, it reminds me of um, of Goliath or the other way around. Goliath reminded me of this of what if you give a person that kind of zots from above power where they could just with impunity kill people just mm-hmm. left and right um, and mysteriously it's not like they just walk up to them and shoot them it's, it's this bolt from the blue you know what is how does that unfold what does that let you do and I gotta admit years of reading science fiction make me think this is gonna have a deeply tragic ending mm-hmm. that would all blow up yes and I was really impressed that it ended as happily as it did <laughs> well he kind of uh, I think he's forcing it <laughs> Oh, but I, I just I can't get over the idea that the goal is laughter. I mean, yeah, it's so not. You know, it's not like universal equality or yeah. 
or happiness. No, it's not even happiness. No, it's just, you're right. It's it, I mean, there's a difference between laughter and happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, you know the the bread and roses strike in the U.S. No, what's that? It was nineteen. Oh, good. It's a contemporary one then. Um, but they they call it the bread and roses strike because the idea was that the workers were going to strike for bread, i.e. Enough food to live on, basic living conditions, but also roses. They wanted to have a life that was sweet. Mm. That you know would have it wouldn't just be a subsistence. Econ- it wouldn't just be like 1984 style, live like the proles, not starve, but have nothing else. They mm. wanted to have the roses of life, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the benefits, the joy, and and this reminded me of that. I mean, he's not trying to establish, say, a guaranteed minimum income for everybody although that would be good <laughs> well he seems to he seems to imply that it, it happens right right he doesn't but, you know say we're gonna you know institute the banks are gonna deliver this amount of money um i've read other novels that you know that's the way they go about things is they say the the production will increase when you you know you take control and you get rid of the inefficiencies and you take the profits out of the in the one percent's right. hands um in this case he seems to he seems to be saying it's not so much the energon technology that that is going to transform the world that is the means of getting uh the people out of the out of the way right the right. The, the cock blockers out of the way and what you're actually seeing is that you know 1908 technology level productivity levels will increase just by making people not uh I'm not, I'm not even sure how he doesn't really explain it, does he? <laughs> well, no, he's kind of, he kind of skims over it, but yeah. he, the opening line is, of his letter is the reconstruction of society upon some rational basis. Right. I, and I guess eliminating the military is a big part of that idea, right? It's, right. The war uh, is counterproductive. He, he says, you know, turn those ships into plowshares. He insists on plowshares. Yeah. Um, okay. A little bit local out there. Yeah. Sure. Well, this was a, this is this is you know so it, things are set up in an inefficient way. They're they're making people work too long for too little. Things aren't going right. So we'll reorganize it in a way. And what's interesting, and Goliath repeats this, is he doesn't give them the secret. He just gets these guys out of the way, and society kind of teaches itself a way to do this better. Yeah, he said that a bunch of times. This, uh, I mean, there is there's precedent for that. You know, the Pax Romana, where you know the Roman peace is caused by the Romans being the only power, right? If you live right. inside Roman territory, you do see a benefit uh, accrue to you. At least, you know, you get ba- hot baths, right? Yeah, and also <laughs> similarly, similar to this too, it's um, the Pax Romana is um, the Romans very deliberately spreading Roman culture as they conquer. So, yeah. you know, Gaul right. is thoroughly romanized even britain is pretty romanized um southern part of it yeah and north africa and mm-hmm. the Balkans. but also yeah. i mean we see it today uh, you know the, the united states has the way i understood it when i was taught by the people who know in canada the reason canada has a small military is because we we have to have one otherwise we can't help the americans out um but we're we're pretty isolated, you know. The only people who've ever invaded Canada are the United States, so we're good, pretty much, right? But so we far. need to, ha- yeah. But the rest of the world, like Korea, has max South Korea has maximized its its population for potential war. Uh, I just read that the U.S. is sending more troops 
to South Korea, which is ridiculous, but whatever. Um, the 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 whole world does, in a, in a sense, benefit from the Americans spending a ton of, on military because there are fewer wars, uh, at least large large wars between large nations because of because of that. And you could see the benefits, maybe not in the states, but um, if if you don't have to have a giant military, you can. You can see a benefit from that. Stephen Pinker has this book that came out last year called The Better Angels of Our Nature. It's an extraordinary book. Um, very, very controversial. Um, very, very powerful book. And he did something that nobody has ever managed to do before, which is he tried to calculate the total amount of lethal violence in human history. And I mean, he just totaled this up for every country, and he defined you know what lethal violence is. Mm-hmm. You know, mostly interstate wars and revolutions and civil wars and so on. And then he charted this out uh, as far back as he possibly could. I mean, no one's ever done this before, which is kind of remarkable. And he made this case that for the past two thousand years, the amount of violence going on has been declining. Mm. Yeah, I mean, by yeah. as long as you assume the population, you know, yeah. you you adjust for population numbers. As a proportion, right. He says, you know, the worst time to be alive, um, in case you're worried about violent death, would be being a hunter-gatherer. And so he spends the second half of the book figuring out why this is so, why, you know, why this decline. And he he admits there's there's bumps along the way. Like, if you look at the 1800s, there is the spectacularly horrible Taiping Rebellion in China, the death toll of which is between 20 and 30 million people. I mean, extraordinary, extraordinary horror. Anytime, uh, anytime something goes wrong in China, though, there's going to be huge death. death. Well, this, yeah, actually. Right? They, I mean, if something goes wrong in India, we're going to see the same thing. Sure. Well, yeah, but China is really good at this. Uh, the, I mean, there's, a, there's, there's a medieval one called the Anlu Shan Rebellion, which he mentions, too, which may be the deadliest political event in human But history. one of the reasons China is so good is because it's so efficient, right? I mean, they, they have cultivated for thousands and thousands of years it's like the roman empire didn't exactly fall it sort of just right it it didn't fall until like the end of the 19th century for them right nice so if you if you you know if you look at this curve going down what made this happen and he thinks military force doesn't play a role which seems kind of obvious but he makes the case you know the military is not really good at protecting people it's good at attacking people Mm -hmm. that what makes it happen is well, I mentioned Hobbes' Leviathan. He says that we basically created a giant Leviathan state mm-hmm. where you know we don't we don't we no longer worry about honor as a as a prompt for immediate killing mm-hmm. uh, because we have mechanisms to take care of that. We have policing, we have courts, we have mores, um, and in the West we've we've taken religion down so many pegs that it's a lot harder to have religious fighting. Um, I mean, it's a really fascinating, fascinating That's book. Fascinating. Yeah, I, I recommend it. It's a, he's a very smart guy. Wow. Uh, and the way he tries to wriggle around World War One and World War Two is pretty good. Because uh, <laughs> they're blips. The better angels of our nature. Um, and it's, well, yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at the, the, the inevitable that seems to be everybody knew was inevitable, World War One, right? Everybody yeah. knew it was coming. In the in the late nineteenth century, they're all talking about it. This Germany, yep. you know, they've yep. been uppity since the eighteen seventies and earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, and they really want it. There's an invasion literature of uh, there's a bunch of novels of what happens if Britain's invaded and Germany's the usual invader. 
and the the in the I was reading a lot about the Franco-Prussian War because I, I just huh. it's something I don't know that much about. You know, there's no documentaries, there's very few movies about it. So it's fascinating, I was, isn't it? I was, I was fascinated by it, and what's so amazing about it is it basically France was just you can't be a power like us, right. and Germany's like I think we can. <laughs> And, and they did. And, and then they, man, they kicked France's ass so hard. Bad, bad, like they, just a week, they like encircled Paris. Right. And then they, and the French, oh, the horrors of this. You know, the, 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 you have the Paris Commune, where all the left-wingers revolt and establish a people's republic. And the Germans make the French fire on their own people to bring down the Paris Commune. And, you know, the, the, the technology is not quite at the level of World War I, but they did have machine guns. They didn't call them that. Yep. But they yep. had them, and they didn't work that great, but when you're in front of one, it sure works well. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they had our, all the artillery that, you know, that artillery technology was not, you know, suddenly perfected in 1914. And you mentioned uh, Nietzsche's response to this, and one of the oh, yeah. things he says that I love is, it's an early essay, I think it's from Untimely Meditations, where he says, too much victory is bad for any society. And he says, you know, now the Germans are going to get stupid. Yeah. <laughs> because of this titanic victory, they're going to become, you know, unimaginative and conformist and dull and, wow, you know, it's kind of interesting prediction. Uh, for yeah. I, I I was just fascinated because Guy de Maupassant and and Nietzsche both had big mustaches. Both fought, <laughs> both fought in the Franco-Prussian War. Both, yeah. both died of syphilis, and and they both had basically the same sort of outlook, which is you know uh, God is dead. Um, and uh, although Nietzsche wasn't prone to laughter, uh, Guy de Maupassant's response was. To laugh as much as you can before you uh, hmm. go insane. Nietzsche's laughter is a different sense. He's uh, yeah, kind of grim German humor. Right. Uh, yeah, it was sort of a grim. <laughs> no, it's nice too because Maupassant is so charming. Oh, and, he's uh, he's great. And Nietzsche is extremely charming, but in a very very different way. I mean, a super brilliant, sarcastic, always looking at you to make sure you were following along kind of way. Right. I don't uh, know what Montpassant thought of Nietzsche, but Nietzsche did uh, apparently quite like Montpassant's writing. Yeah, which says a lot because Nietzsche hated a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he he makes a list of of people he, whose writing he likes, and among them is Montpassant, and he's the only one he really made the some major notes about. Well, I think uh, this has taken us in a great. Great location. I, mm-hmm. I'm really glad I got a chance to read the story. I never read it before. And, oh, uh, I'm glad you did. I... Uh, no, a friend. Just as a as a plug, um, a friend of mine and a former colleague, uh, Earl Labor, just uh, published uh, his biography of London. I strongly recommend it. Oh yeah, I, I saw the uh, there was a new audiobook release of a London collection, or uh, not collection biography. So I'm going to check that out. If it, what's his name? Earl Labor. Okay. And, uh, Earl is a is a incredible guy, a major major London scholar, and uh, uh, I mean knows this knows this stuff ridiculously well. Um, and so it was nice for me just to just to get a chance to read this story that I hadn't hadn't read yet. So I want to thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. Yeah, Jack London and American Life. Oh yeah, this is the same one. There's an audio book of it. I oh. think I'm gonna have to get this now. Fantastic. Yeah, me too. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.